emergencies. Now that you know anatomy and, and normal physiology, let's talk about females within their reproductive years who, who present themselves to health care with a complaint having to do with what could be their GYN symptoms. Okay? Remembering anatomy, your differential diagnosis for any woman with abdominal pain is GYN, pregnancy, bladder, GI tract. There's lots of different reasons, but in the female, of within reproductive years, you always have to re remember that the GYN complications are of your list of potential GYN problems associated with whatever the complaint is. So you have to keep that in mind. And as such, what we're going to first talk about is gaining the history of the woman complaining of GYN complications. Now remember, most of these are not emergencies. They are people who need to be seen by physicians or mid-level practitioners, but they may not be true 911 emergencies. So when you're trying to get a history of the present illness, use all the acronyms that EMS has been advocating for a long time, sample OPQRST, depending upon the complaint. But you often have to think about it, and your book talks about associated symptoms and pertinent negatives with the OPQRST. The associated symptoms with GYN complications can include the list that are on this slide. Now, this woman has abdominal pain. She's coming into the ER. What kind of a special room do I have to have in the emergency department because she's between 9 and 60 years of age? Can I put her in a room that only does eye exams? What kind of an exam is going to happen? A, a pelvic exam. So that's a special room in an ER or a doctor's office. That's the, that's the type of organization of care you have to think about here is that we have to rule out those GYN uh, lists as the reason for the complaint. So you also have to ask, are there signs of infection, unusual discharge, fever, nausea and vomiting, signs of sepsis, Remembering that the bladder and the rectal vault are also there, you have to ask about associated GI, GI symptoms and urinary tract infection symptoms. And then when you ask about the pain, it is OPQRST as your guideline of what to ask about. Um, just as a reminder, OPQRST, O is onset, P is provocation and palliation, what makes it better, what makes it worse. Um, what's Q? Quality. Quality. So you might have them describe from a list of potentials like sharp, dull, burning. Uh, what's R? Radiation. Does it go anywhere else? Don't suggest it. Oh, does this go from your belly button to your right lower quadrant? <laughs> That is the power of your suggestion. They're going to go, uh-huh, just because you act like you want it to be so. So when asking about radiation, does this discomfort go anywhere else, period. And then uh, S is severity, and what do we use for that? One to ten scale. Zero is no pain or discomfort. Don't forget that pain is uh, in the minds of the beholder. And then what's T? It means time, but what does that mean in relationship to the history you're trying to get? When did 
Actually, that's onset. Time is, is it steady or is it intermittent? That's what that refers to. Um, the other things you're going to ask this person about, because she is of the childbearing years, her pre-existing history, of course, just like any other patient. But we're going to ask about her menstrual period. Now, for the guys in the room, and even girls, sometimes this is embarrassing. But remember, you have to kind of desensitize yourself here and put on your poker face and just ask the questions. If you are professional about this, you will not ever have any difficulties. It will be a normal conversation. But if you start to get shy and stutter around and maybe not even try to ask the question, you'll miss an important history information, a bunch of it, and you'll be a moron. So you don't want to do that. So be uh, a professional and ask the questions. If you were having groin pain, I, as a male, I would not have any difficulty asking you about your scrotum because I know you own one unless you've had surgery. Within that are a couple of things that you value. And if you had discharge from your, your urethra through your penis, I can say the word penis too. All men have them. Okay. So women have uteri, ovaries, fallopian tubes, a vagina. It's amazing, isn't it? Because uh, if we only had one gender, life would be very boring. So ask the question. Some of this terminology that we're going to be talking about are, again, back to the root word and prefixes and suffixes. You can understand any of this terminology if you get that. Menor is the, is the base word here, and that has to do with the menstrual cycle. Dis is difficult or painful. So if a woman complains of abdominal pain and they have a history of dysmenorrhea, difficult, painful, or unusual menstrual cycles, that is a clue with which you can use to try to sort out the differential diagnoses on this person. Aggravation, that P and P thing, there's some things that you need to think about, and uh, this has to do with um, rebound tenderness. How do you elicit rebound tenderness? What is it? How do you know that it's occurring? Palpate. How do you do that? Okay, so you're doing the four different quadrants of the abdomen. Now remember that the list of how that's to be done. If I say, ooh, right lower quadrant hurts, that's the last quadrant you'd examine. And then what's the order in a medical exam? You observe, you look, then listen, then feel. In the EMS setting, we don't listen for bowel sounds, but in a non-emergent setting, absolutely you'd listen to bowel sounds because that GI motility is a big clue as to what's going on with the patient. So you'd look at the belly first, then you listen to it, and then you feel it, and you feel it in the quadrants you stated. But then how would I elicit whether there was rebound tenderness? Pain when you release, okay. Here's the gig again. Remember your face? You're gaining eye contact with the patient. You're pushing down, and then you say to the patient, does that hurt more when I release or when I push down? And they go, release? Like it's a test question. They go by your face. And you're trying to see if there's rebound tenderness, so you're always going to be 
trying to influence the patient unconsciously that that's actually there when it may not be. But really, the best way to get rebound is to bump the cart. Oh, I'm sorry. What should she do? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, did that hurt? That's rebound. What's that a sign of, though? Yes, sometimes it is. But what else could it indicate? Peritonitis. The whole lining of the belly is inflamed. So if she also says, I have discharge, fever, and she's got rebound, ooh, there's an infectious process going on. So you doing a good assessment makes a huge difference there. Gaining history and the actual physical assessment. Dyspareunia means difficult or painful something. And I used to work for a family practitioner who remembered this term by saying dyspareunia is better than no perennia at all. He was a total pig. So that tells you what it stands for. Sometimes it hurts with defecation as well. Because of the pelvic floor and the makeup of the pelvic floor in a female, that is part of the gig down there. What makes it better? Remember the rectus muscle is a very uh, strong influence over the peritoneal lining. So sometimes keeping that relaxed by being in a curled position can help alleviate some of the discomfort. Once in a while, when I'm trying to describe on paper or to someone else, the demeanor and affect of the patient when they complain of abdominal pain, I'll do the across the room assessment and I'm gonna describe their position. This is a 28 year old female who complains of uh, global abdominal pain uh, lying in a flat supine position. Why does that make a difference? You, you'd think that she might, with a peritoneal irritation, be in more of a curled position with knees up. So that's just affirmation of my observations for others. You need to start asking about obstetric history. If any woman in childbearing years who has complaints that may include their GYN system. Gravita is a term you need to understand, and we'll talk a lot more about that in a minute, but what it, a gravid uterus is a pregnant uterus. So that term refers to the number of pregnancies this woman has had. From conception to the moment the uh, products of conception or are delivered through the vagina, no matter what the age. Even if it was a week and miscarried or nine months and delivered. That is a gravid uterus, you count each and every one. Para is the number of viable deliveries. Viable is a medical legal term that has to do with the age of the uh, fetus. When do you suppose a fetus could live outside the womb? At what age? Yeah. It's in the 20th. We, 24, 25, 26 weeks is usually considered viable. Now in the old terminology that was seven months gestation is what they considered viable. We now do transports for 22 weekers. <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's just around six months of pregnancy or less. And some of those babies do very, very well. Amazing. So they're about the size of my Palmer surface and don't even look like a human, but we are uh, going way past the age of what used to be called viability. But when it comes to counting, 
para, viability is about seven months, and if you wanted to describe that to the woman, how many times have you been pregnant and how many babies have you had? Well, if she has a gravita of seven and a para of four. Does that necessarily mean she's had four or just four have made it to that age? That's the problem. You've got to figure that out. In a history, why, was that, why is that important? Because um, if she's pregnant, which is a differential when there's abdominal pain. You have to think about that. You need to know how tired that uterus is. Um, you need to know if there have been, if she's at the fifth month of gestation and has had other spontaneous abortions, miscarriages, um, that needs to be a piece of information you know. Plus, when you're reading medical information, they're going to be spitting this language out to you. You've got to know what that means. Um, gravitas 7, para 4, what do you have to ask? Now remember, viable, they could have been born at 7 months and be viable but not have lived. Do you count that as a para? Yes. You need to ask what happened to the other three pregnancies. The math doesn't make sense. Sometimes they've had surgical abortions, sometimes they've had uh, spontaneous abortions. So you need to figure out the math there as part of her history. Then ask about the last menstrual period. And this is a piece of information you just have to ask, period. Again, put on the poker face and ask the question. When was your last menstrual period that was pretty normal? If she spotted the month before, remember that can be because of implantation of a zygote. So you need to know that. More history questions. Now the question can be, sometimes in the heat of the moment, could you be pregnant? God, no. Denial is huge there. So you need to phrase this question very delicately. Since Clinton was in the White House, the act of sex has been uh, defined in finite ways. And even youth don't always call sex what we would call sexual acts. The act of fellatio for many, many people is not a sexual act at all. Blah. Why not? Um, but you have to ask the question very delicately here. Have you had unprotected vaginal sex? That's pretty specific. So instead of just saying, could you be pregnant, <gasps> God, no, no way could I be pregnant of the 45-year-old who's got abdominal pain. Instead, you have to ask, have you had unprotected vaginal sex in the last couple of months? There's a couple of things there. Unprotected vaginal sex sets her up for sexually transmitted diseases and infections. But it also sets her up for the act of conception. So there's a, there's a couple of follow-up things that are going to need to occur just by simply asking that question. But you have to be specific sometimes. Now, the other part of this is, where do you ask that question? One-on-one, on one, no bystanders. No mothers, fathers, boyfriends, sisters, brothers, nobody. 
they may have a devoted loved one right next to them, and that wasn't the one they had intercourse with. So be very careful here. This is a very private conversation. You have to know it, but it's a very private conversation. And you, there are always times when we have one-on-ones with patients, many times in the back of an ambulance. In the ER, where do you suppose I have private conversations with my patients? Uh, sometimes the, the bystanders are there. Bathroom. Bathroom, that's one. X-ray, second. We don't let family go to X-ray for many reasons. But that's also a private time where you can ask those questions like, has anybody hurt you or can you tell me more about this little problem? Okay, then you need to ask about if they say yes to unprotected vaginal sex. You need to ask about the signs and symptoms of pregnancy. Have you missed a period? Do you, do you have breast tenderness? Um, those types of things need to be asked because they may just not know. Denial is huge here, especially in college towns. Now, again, we're asking more history questions here, but in, in a medical emergency or a medical case, you have to be very thorough in history gathering, otherwise your list of differentials is going to be silly. So when it comes to the GYN organs and the physiology, you need to ask about the history there. Have you had previous STDs? Did you have your STD as sexually transmitted diseases or infections? Have you had them treated appropriately? Have all your partners been treated? Do you have a history of, I need to clear something up, abortion is the, the loss of products of conception. That's all that means. It is not a political <coughs> word. So miscarriage is something that we use in common language to say that this happens spontaneously. But in medical terminology, that's called a spontaneous abortion. So understand that when I say if abortion occurs, that doesn't mean she's had an abortion. It means that she had, has had a miscarriage. You need to ask about previous ectopic pregnancies because that can be repeated. If there is blood loss, what color is it? How much is it? And when you're asking about how much, we're talking about pads, sanitary pads. I asked that one time of a lady and she said, pads, let's talk towels. I've gone through two towels in the last half hour. Pretty vigorous bleeding? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't encourage tampon use here. It does not help. Usually when women have a GYN problem and not related to the menstruation, we advocate not use of tampons here so we can kind of watch for flow. If there's vaginal discharge, this is where you really have to put on your poker face because this can get kind of touchy. Um, there is a certain odor to infectious uh, diseases that can occur in the uterus and the cervix. Uh, and it has a certain discharge that is created that has a certain color. And this can go along with any pelvic inflammatory disease and you need to ask about those as well. Any vaginal bleeding or discharge, just ask the question. And then if so, have them try to describe it. It's a pretty bad day when you can smell it. Ask about use of contraceptives. Now again, this is a non-emergent situation. 
you're working in a doctor's office or an emergency department and it's not an emergency, you're gaining history. And these are the questions we need to ask. There's all kinds of birth control out there. And some people have a huge misunderstanding of what it does to the human body or whether it even provides the birth control they think it will. Withdrawal uh, hasn't worked for a long time. Uh, the rhythm method is why I have six brothers. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of silliness out there uh, that are natural, but are, you know, you can kind of predict ovulation to a certain extent if you know some signs and symptoms, but it's way too random to be predictable. Birth control pills are a medication. What does the human body do, understanding pharmacology as you do, if you're on a certain medication for a long period of time, it develops tolerance. So pretty soon, because your body has changed or you've developed tolerance, the birth control pill is not the right dosage anymore. The most common reason why we find this out is that a woman will come in with an ovarian cyst. That means she's ovulating. Huh, that shouldn't happen, right? So that means the birth control pill is not working. It is not 100%, not 100%. Spermicides are way low on the spectrum of what works, but if you combine it with a diaphragm that fits properly, that's pretty good. But that means planning, and most events like this are usually influenced by alcohol. Yeah, get drunk, get stupid. So if you are an organized person, this is a nice combination for birth control. And then the woman doesn't have to cause complications with her body because what huge complication can occur with birth control pills? Development of clots, right? Especially in bigger women who smoke and are sedentary. All those factors together and boy, that's a setup for clot, stroke, all kinds of things. IUDs, there's maybe one or two still on the market, uh, usually placed after the woman has had a baby. It's pretty good, pretty reliable. It just kind of irritates the lining of the uterus all the time. Conception can take place, but will not hopefully will not implant, although a baby born carrying the IUD out with him is always good. Condoms, a latex product that when wet loses its barrier protection. Think about that. A latex product, just like any latex product, that when wet, loses its barrier protection. So how does one use a condom? Hopefully quickly. Ah. A very common tragedy in the ER on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings is the woman who comes in with a condom in her vaginal cervical area somewhere lost because he stayed in too long. Now there's a problem there and we give a lot of education and one is that if you stay in too long you lose the barrier protection on the latex and the contents of the, of the condom is spilled into where you didn't want it to go. Congratulations, you used a condom, but do it right. <laughs> um, Rhythm method, we talked about that. It has to do with ovulation. And you have to stay away about seven to 10 days on either side of ovulation. 
You can predict that with temperatures and things like that, but you have to be a very organized person to try to use the rhythm method and prevent pregnancies. A lady down the street used to sleep on the porch of the house in the summertime during ovulation. You could always tell when Charlotte was ovulating because she'd be sleeping on the porch. Tubal ligation, not 100%, not 100%. If the surgeon knows what they're doing, they can clip those tubes to prevent the ova from being pulled down into the fallopian tubes, but you know, testing afterwards and all kinds of things makes a lot of difference. And then of course, the males can have their little tubes snipped. Now also not 100%, you have to be tested afterwards to make sure that the sperm is not there. And then Depo-Provera, what is that? It's a shot, it's a in, hormone injected. How much control? I mean, how long? Duration? Six yeah, it's about six months. There are, uh, so they won't have a menstrual period, okay? You ask about menstrual period and they'll say, I don't have those anymore, I'm receiving Depo-Provera. That makes sense. <clears throat> Again, you have to be careful about the duration of action. Sometimes women think it's gonna last, you know, eight, nine months and they get surprised. Norplant, hardly used anymore. They were little uh, um, devices implanted under the skin and the arm that released hormones routinely. Other history questions, has anybody hurt you? History of trauma to the GYN system. And then uh, her general demeanor, demeanor psychologically, uh, under stress, those types of things. Okay, so you're called to an older housing area for an older woman who's screaming into the phone to dispatch I'm bleeding to death, I'm bleeding to death. And when you get there, she's on the basement steps and the floor of the basement is pretty well covered in blood. It looks like a blood bath. She's pale, she's tachycardic and cool to touch. Uh-oh. She's 60, differential diagnoses. What? She's trauma. Trauma. Yep. She's bleeding from somewhere in her pelvis. It's so vigorous we can't see where. Rectal bleeding? Bright red. Pretty low in the GI tract if that's the case, right? So it could be GI bleeding, could be trauma. Because does the bladder bleed like that? Not usually. Not usually. So vaginal bleeding, what from? 60-year-old, hmm. In this particular case, a helicopter was called to the local hospital. I mean, this lady was very, very shocking and had lost a ton of blood. So they called a helicopter to the local hospital and I happened to open the curtains just when the nurse was putting in a Foley catheter. What a great time to see what I needed to see. He had the vestibule open looking for her meatus and was cleaning it off and there was a laceration about that long, about an inch in length, right next to her vagina. And blood was coming from it. What questions do I need to just ask her? Did you fall? She was very excited. Has anybody hurt you? 
Yeah, you need to ask the question. It's a generic question. It's not accusing anybody, and it may open up the window for that female to say, yeah, some jerk just came into the house and raped me or whatever the case may be. She was up into the wood pile in the basement and fell on a piece of wood right on her perineum. That was all it was. She was in a decompensated shock from that fall, from a little laceration. That's how vascular that area is. Whether male or female, you bleed like a stuck pig from the area. But remember, you need to ask about trauma. Just because it's medical in appearance doesn't mean that you don't ask about any history of trauma or falls or anybody hurt you in any way. The rest of the physical assessment then, as you're gathering history, again, this can be simultaneous. You need to provide privacy. If you're in a medical clinic or an emergency department, in general, the clinician who does the GYN exam um, needs to have a witness in the room, and we usually provide that witness as a female. It doesn't mean males can't be a witness. It's just a medical legal thing that when a GYN is, exam is done on females or males, that there's always a witness in the room. Many clinicians don't do that so much with males, but in this day and age, it's a good idea to do with both. So if when you're doing clinical or end up working in that type of an atmosphere, you just remember the rules. Oh, the, the doc's going to go down and do a GYN exam. We need somebody to go. I used to work nights with a bunch of guys. Guess who got to visit with all the GYN patients? Me. And if I wasn't on, because I worked part-time, the clerk went down because she was female. So it doesn't have to be a female by law, but it's a good idea. Uh, comforting attitude. Remember privacy. Uh, this is a human being with all the normal human functions and feelings that go along with that. Always put yourself or your mother in that position and then it helps you a little bit in understanding. No matter the size, the smell, the, the IQ, no matter what, this is a human being that deserves your absolute professionalism. And then the rest of your physical exam and history has to do with the general uh, look of the body and other complaints. How do I do an orthostatic examination or a postural test on a patient? It's blood pressure and pulse. Lying, seating, and seated and standing, sorry. So why would I do an orthostatic test on a female of childbearing years with a complaint of abdominal pain? Could be internal bleeding, could be sepsis. Septic shock can make the patient, or any type of sepsis can make the patient a little low on volume as well. So if I lie the patient down, take the baseline set of vital signs, and then sit her up and wait one minute, as long as she's not on rate-controlled medication, the blood, if it's a positive test, the blood pressure will fall and the heart rate will go up, indicating that um, the cardiovascular system is low on volume. Anytime the patient complains of syncope upon arising, then you'd stop the examination. 
But again, it's usually a three-part assessment of blood pressure and pulse, and you should have a period of about one minute after you've adjusted their position before you recheck their vital signs. And you stop the procedure any time they say, ooh, I feel like I'm going to pass out. That would be stupid to t be dinking around taking a blood pressure while the patient's trying to hit the floor. Right? Right. <laughs> I've seen students try to do that. Oh, but I've got to get your blood pressure. No, you don't. That's a positive test right there. Just lay them back down again and make them safe. Again, the order with which we examine the abdomen is look, then listen, then feel. We usually do pretty cursory exams of the abdomen. Uh, surgeons do a much more uh, intricate e examination because that's their gig. Um, and they're pretty well trained in uh, differential diagnoses of abdominal pain. Now, listening for bowel sounds does take some time. We talked about that in the physical assessment of the patient a few weeks ago, if you remember, in that it takes several minutes to examine the abdomen thoroughly in order to determine whether they do or do not have bowel sounds. Any sound is positive. General management of, the, of this GYN patient, we've done a history, we've done a physical exam. Some of the things you might want to do is start an IV if you think they have some signs of infection. Um, just if they're very, very sick, the standard initial survey and management of the patient. And then IV access, if you're in the emergency department or a doctor's office, you might want to pull off some lab work at the same time. Organize the patient's care to include the fact that she's going to have a GYN exam. Uh, those th types of things are always thought about. If she's sick, she needs to be in a critical care area just like any other very sick patient. And monitors and IV and oxygen. Other little caveats to talk about, again, discourage the use of tampons by any woman who is having unusual vaginal bleeding. We need to not staunch that flow, but to watch the flow. Um, if shock is present, compensated or decompensated, uh, Trendelenburg is still talked about, but uh, that is becoming more and more controversial. In some of the medical articles now, they're talking about the fact that you want that patient to be tachypnic, breathing fast, in order to gain oxygen and blow off CO2 in their acidotic state. And if they're sitting on their head in a Trendelenburg position, that's hard to do. And it, they're not sure it makes that much different in, in blood pressure. But at least a flat supine position, and if the clinician wants it, you can drop their head 15 degrees if you think it helps. If they're short of breath, however, don't do that. Mass trousers are something that are talked about more with medical shock than traumatic shock. Um, it can, it is still advocated as allowing you 30 more minutes with your patient in shock. So it buys you some time, but again, that's a controversial use and if you're in Texas, they don't even carry the darn things anymore. The position of comfort for this patient really depends upon the patient. Uh, you can do a vaginal exam, that clinician can do a vaginal exam in about three different positions, patient positions. Um, we can have the patient get on a bedpan, lift her pelvis up and do a pelvic exam that way if we don't have the typical uh, devices on the cot. Uh, you can do it in a left lateral recumbent if that's more comfortable. You can deliver babies that way too to tell you the truth. 
Um, there's lots of different ways to position the patient. It really depends upon their comfort level and what you're doing at the time. Always consider the patient to be pregnant. You're asking in your medical history what's their last menstrual period and whether it's normal or not. But always consider that woman in childbearing years to be pregnant. Prove it wrong. How do we do that? UPTs, urine pregnancy tests. How can we do that? How can you do that in your own private life? Go to Target and buy one. Boy, they are accurate. They're very, very accurate. Some of them, I mean, you barely have walked by sperm and it's already positive. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. It's detecting HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin levels, which are secreted as soon as pregnancy occurs. And unless you're taking antibiotics or aspirin or goofy things like that, that's a pretty accurate exam. And that's exactly what we would do at the bedside in the ER in a doctor's office. We just capture some urine, drop it in the plate, wait a minute or two, and, and see if you're pregnant. Now, we can send blood work and determine two things. We can determine yes or no, you are pregnant with a qualitative HCG. Or if you are pregnant and we want to know how far along you are, we can get a quantitative HCG and kind of determine how far along the gestation is. Other general management uh, thoughts here are uh, if you, this is a 911 call and you're transporting this patient, position of comfort, choice of facilities, usually closest unless there's a special set of circumstances, but you, if you have a patient who is shocky, you have to think about this being a surgical case. If this is an ectopic pregnancy, her life depends upon you getting her to a surgeon who can stop the bleeding, which will end her life. Okay, let's talk about some specific gynecologic emergencies here. Um, so that you can get a list of differentials kind of firm in your head as to what else could be going on with the patient. Not only do you have to rule out urinary, you have to rule out GI as a reason for the gynecologic complaints, but we'll talk about it as we get into the specific pathophys to help you understand that the signs and symptoms, how they're different, or sometimes how they're the same. Let's first talk about that female with the complaint of abdominal pain. There are some terms that you might want to start to understand. Dysmenorrhea I've talked about before. Mittel schmerz is the pain associated, it's kind of an ache, uh, associated with ovulation. It usually is a lower quadrant discomfort associated with um, ovulation. And if my right ovary, its turn is to ovulate this month, What's your differential? Right lower quadrant pain. Appendicitis. Ah. So that's why it's important to ask her last menstrual period. If you're about halfway, and this is very common in young women who are just getting to know their bodies, who uh, usually middle schmerz goes away after you have a kid. I mean, you don't even feel it anymore when you ovulate. So it's in young women who are getting to know their menstrual cycle and their bodies and how they're changing, and they're having right lower quadrant pain that's two or three days in, in duration, 
they feel it is. It's kind of an achiness and can be confused with appendicitis very easily. And endometriosis we're going to talk about, but this is a, a condition of, that suffix means, osis, means a condition of the endometrium. So this slide is actually showing a couple of different problems, but what happens in endometriosis or a condition of the endometrium is that the endometrial lining gets irritated as hell. It's usually in women who have not had childbirth. And what happens is that it becomes so bad that the uterus itself erodes and creates little pinpoint holes in the uterus. It can get that bad. This means that when menstruation occurs, they can actually seep fluid into the free peritoneal cavity. Tell me the pathophysiology now. Blood is only supposed to be within vessels, right? What happens when it occurs outside of the vessel? What does the body consider that to be? Foreign, immune system attacks it. So this person will have signs of infection and can be septic in nature when it gets carried away. But they, what other signs and symptoms will they have because they're having bleeding outside a normal area? Pain, nausea, vomiting. Some women with endometriosis are very, very sick when it actually gets inflamed and then it becomes endometriitis. This is uh, very common in this day and age now because many women are deferring pregnancy. Uh, uh, usually obstetricians tell women who have endometriosis, why don't you get pregnant? <laughs> and that may cure your disease. They don't know why yet, but it does. This can infect all areas of the body that have endometrial lining. So that occurs clear up inside the tubes and because of the uh, positioning, it affects the bladder, the GI tract, everything. So women who tell you in their medical history, I have endometriosis, you understand that every 28 days they have severe cramping, uh, sometimes very difficult bleeding. Uh, they may even, if it becomes endometriitis, uh, get kind of septic looking every month. Every month they have pretty bad problems. When it becomes infected, that's a whole nother matter. Again, they'll look septic, so this is the patient who looks a little toxic. Um, have you ever had an influenza A or B where you just look like death warmed over? That is a toxic look. When, when I say somebody looks toxic, they look sicker than hail. That pale gray look and sallow and uh, very dehydrated and their hair hurts, you know, that look. That's a toxic look. That those from the doorway again, when you look at somebody like that, you go, oh, sick, sick. In endometriitis, um, of course, they're going to have lower abdominal pain. They may have purulent vaginal secretions. What does purulent mean? Ever had a boil or an abscess? It's that pus that comes out of there. Yeah purulent, that infectious, icky stuff. If they're septic, this is considered a pelvic inflammatory disease. This is a whole category of infections that can occur in women of child, well, even outside childbearing years, but generally in childbearing years. 
that is part and parcel there, but can create terrible sepsis and is a very common cause of sterility in women in this day and age. And it can be caused by lots of different things. Almost all of them sexually transmitted, almost all of them. Pelvic inflammatory disease, again, is a general category. This is that woman who presents herself to the office, the ER, or even the ambulance, who may be pretty septic, high fever, chills, toxic looking, who says the, how this started was this terrible abdominal aching. And then she started to spike a fever. And they walk around on their tiptoes. Why? Because when they walk on their heels, it causes rebound tenderness. They have signs of peritoneal irritation. You can usually tell the folks who have rebound uh, appendicitis and things like that because they're, they're kind of walking gingerly. They don't want to heel pound. And if you ask them to, they'll refuse to do it because it hurts. This sepsis can go as far as the liver. It can get into the bloodstream and cause her death. This is kind of in general what toxic shock syndrome was all about back in the 70s or 80s. When tampons got bigger and started creating scratches inside the vagina, which allowed bacteria to enter the GYN system, that woman became septic, went into septic shock, and many of them died just simply because the industry cr started creating tampons that were so huge and absorbent that they were putting them in dry, in a dry vagina, and created scratches. Center for Disease Control figured that out. So these people can really be sick, really, really sick. Most PIDs, they have a low-grade fever, they look a little sick, they're uncomfortable, they've been walking around sometimes for weeks with a general abdominal pain. And again, they've got to have the GYN problems ruled out. They may have appendicitis and all other kinds of things creating this look, but GYN is a very common complication. And all the signs and symptoms that go along with PID. Ovarian cyst, another gynecologic abnormality that can occur and is very, very common. Remember how when ovulation is about to occur, a mature ova rises to the surface of the ovary and creates a little blister. Well, what if that doesn't rupture correctly? Doesn't release the ova. Maybe the blister continues to form. Or a blood vessel gets involved and a blood-filled sac, cyst is a sac of fluid, another one starts to form. And then the ovary becomes distended and irritated. Ovarian cyst. Very common, very common in women of childbearing years. Then when it ruptures, that's a pretty big cyst to rupture. It causes pain and sometimes can cause a release of some blood in the peritoneal cavity if it's blood filled. They rarely have enough bleeding to cause a problem, but it's enough to cause irritation. Now, think about where the ovaries are at. The broad ligaments hold them up 
freely, almost into the retroperitoneal space. They're pretty back far. It's not antiflex with the uterus, it's sitting behind the uterus. So, what's that feel like? Where's she gonna complain of pain? Sometimes back, lower quadrant, they sit gingerly, why? Perineal floor gets pushed up, ovaries get pushed up, and if they're irritated, that hurts. So sometimes they'll sit on a cheek and then scoot over into a chair position. It's amazing to watch them. You'll see that postpartum too, <laughs> when they're avoiding that perineal area. The other thing is, if you, the, the ovaries sit right next to the bladder. What happens when you start to pee? What does the bladder do? It actually rises up. That's, that's what allows drainage. So that muscle of the bladder, actually just as you're about to release your Kegel muscle and let it flow, the bladder rises a little bit. So bumps up against the ovaries. So the, the problem with ovarian type of pain is the fact that it can be so confused with urinary tract infections. She'll say, it hurts when I start to pee in my lower quadrant and back. Urinary tract infection, right? Well, we're gonna get a urine sample and try to figure it out, but it's, it's just one of those differentials we have gotta figure out as, as we're trying to sort out what the different things could be. But just remember that your bladder actually rises a little bit and then starts to settle down into the pelvis as you pee. So it is usually a sudden onset of moderate to severe sharpish pain that becomes an ache, affected on one side. It is visceral in nature, so it's hard for them to pinpoint exactly where it is. Parietal pain to the outside is usually, oh, it hurts right here, and they can point their finger right on it. Visceral pain is harder to figure out, especially diabetics. They'll go, oh, it kind of hurts in here. That's more of a visceral type of complaint. And they occasionally can have vaginal bleeding, depending upon the size and or type of cyst that's ruptured. Another differential is cystitis itself, urinary cystitis. Again, the term cyst means a fluid-filled sac. Okay, so if I have cystitis, where's my discomfort probably going to be? Above the pubis, suprapubic. It may create frequency of urination, burning on urination, pain after urination because of the bladder spasms. So they may talk about going to the bathroom a lot, frequency, with smaller amounts of urine, and it hurts or burns to pee. And these are usually in women who have frequent urinary tract infections, and many of them are so good at it they can cure themselves. What do you suppose they do to cure their urinary tract infection? Cranberry juice, it changes the pH of the urine a little bit, although I think increasing the amount of fluids is better than the actual cranberry juice itself, but forcing fluids. Flush it out. Get that bladder active and get that bacteria out of there. It's usually the best way to cure a urinary tract infection. And women are a setup for this, remember, because of the anatomy. Also, some women have unusual anatomy just right so that the introduction of 
uh, bacteria in their urine is easier than other women. Or in their ureters, your ureters have valves in them that are supposed to allow for dissension of urine. Sometimes women don't have very mature valves, or in men, and they get chronic backflow of urine and can get uh, higher urinary tract infections. Dysuria, suprapubic pain, frequency, even hematuria can occur here. Anytime you think it's a urinary tract infection in a female, we have to rule out GYN problems. So they're going to get a urine test, they're going to get a pelvic. Mental schmerz I talked about is the, the term related to ovarian discomfort during ovulation. Again, the ovaries are supposed to take turns ovulating left versus right, and you have to remember this when it comes to lower quadrant pain and trying to figure out what else could this be. It's not really pathological at all. It is a normal occurrence. That feeling of discomfort, though, goes away. You don't even feel it anymore once you've had babies. Ectopic pregnancy. Now, I told you that we were going to talk about women of childbearing years in a non-pregnant state. But then I also told you in history and physical exam, you always have to remember that she could be pregnant, and that's what's causing the symptoms. She just doesn't know it. And the classic of this is an ectopic pregnancy. Now, this is important for you to get the picture of this. This is truly a 911 emergency. You will have a young female lying on the floor looking quite sick in decompensated shock and you'll go, wow, trauma? What could cause decompensated shock in a young female other than trauma? Ectopic pregnancy should be right up there, right up there on your list. Always consider it and kind of go, ooh, last menstrual period? Have you had unprotected vaginal sex? Quickly ask the questions as you're loading her onto the cart and taking her to a surgeon. This is like a trauma patient who's had, who is in hemorrhagic shock. This patient is in hemorrhagic shock. So this is a classic picture you need to place in your long-term memory pan up there somewhere to say, ooh, I remember when Rose talked about this. Ectopic pregnancy, let's check it off our list right away because this is very, very dangerous to her life. Many women die from this every year. Okay, so we talked about normal anatomy and physiology of pregnancy. Ovulates about halfway into the menstrual cycle. So we're talking 14 to 20 days into the cycle. This could occur, conception could take place. And it's supposed to occur in the ampulla. Now we talked about those that can occur in the free peritoneal space. In fact, very, very rare to have that. Less than 1% occur in the peritoneal space. The fimbria pick it up, the ova gets into the tube, and most of these are tubular in nature. We, know, we talked about how small that fallopian tube is. Now, by the time it grows to about two weeks or a month of gestation, that's a pretty big little nodule inside that small tube. What other signs would she have? We're, we're now Ovulation occurred at 14 days. This has grown to two weeks to three weeks after conception, right in the tube. What other signs would she have? She will have just 
missed her menstrual period, right? Oh, well, that, well, that was, uh, let's see, what's today, August 28th? If she was lying on the floor today, what she might say to you when you say quickly, last menstrual period, she may say it was July 2nd, July 10th. Got it? Ooh, she missed one, just missed it. Could, could you be pregnant? You see how stupid that question could be now? And they'll go, oh, God, no. Have, you need to ask it in a hurry. She's sick. Have you had unprotected vaginal sex in, in the last couple of months? Well, yeah. Bingo. Exquisite abdominal pain, signs of shock, just missed a period or could be pregnant, ectopic pregnancy. She needs a surgeon. She needs it in a hurry. Okay, any female of childbearing years with exquisite abdominal pain or the same female who has signs of shock? Because once it ruptures, the pain actually gets a little bit better. Tube ruptured, all that blood into the peritoneal cavity, but the pain is not as exquisite. It's more of an ache or pressure. This is on the rise. Why? Let me show you the picture again. Why is this on the rise? Increased incidence of what problem in females? Because of? Nope. Sexually transmitted diseases. What do infections create? Scars. Impediments to flow. If my endometrial lining gets inflamed from whatever, I'm going to create scars all along that area. And old scarring impedes flow, especially to a growing thing. So that's why it's on the increase, and that's why we have to pay particular attention to this. Sometimes use of an IUD can create it. Uh, tubal ligations can actually create this. It didn't get completely snipped or obstructed, partially obstructed. They call this a hemodynamic equivalent to a gunshot wound to the abdomen. Does that put that picture in your head? That's how dramatic this is. Now, occasionally, occasionally, you'll capture one early. Uh, it hasn't ruptured. She's starting to have pain. These are usually women who present themselves to the ER or to the doctor's office. And they say, I got this pain that's getting worse and worse. And again, it could be an ectopic pregnancy that just is not out of control yet. Now, there are many things we can do non-surgical now, like giving them chemotherapy to get rid of the pregnancy. Lots of different things now that we can do to get rid of ectopic pregnancies before they create such havoc in the body. But what will happen in that fallopian tube is they'll just take that fallopian tube, it's ruptured anyway and can't be functional anymore. They'll probably leave the ovary because that allows for release of estrogen and progesterone later on in life. Uh, it kind of controls the brain, so to speak. They kind of work together. But uh, they'll take that tube. Hopefully the other one is healthy enough to take over. 
reproduction for the patient. The body will sense that that's non-functioning. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Many women with one healthy ovary get pregnant multiple times. Do pretty well. Vaginal bleeding as a complaint. We've switched from abdominal pain as the chief complaint to vaginal bleeding. Uh, why are you here today, ma'am? I'm having vaginal bleeding. History needs to start, uh, patient assessment, uh, including in the abdominal assessment. Um, it, it can be simple menstruation. It, if it's in a young person, maybe it's just irregular for a few years until their uterus gets it act, its act together. If it's, if it's an unknown pregnancy, it could be ectopic. It could be that the products of conception are screwed up, implantation was wrong, and placenta failed. And it's a spontaneous abortion from placenta previa or placenta abruption. Um, abortion is the most common reason for vaginal bleeding once uh, HCG is released. So you have to ask about last menstrual period and last if any unprotected vaginal sex. Many women cannot support the products of conception once it's implanted because they don't secrete enough estrogen or progesterone to support the pregnancy. That's a very common reason why there could be a spontaneous abortion. Some of these women bleed gushes uh, a week late on their menstrual period and it's actually a spontaneous abortion. So our job is to try to save uh, whatever's being released, don't just throw, have her throw that stuff away. With vigorous bleeding comes clots. You'd be surprised sometimes what's in a clot. Many times a huge clot will in actually have the products of conception right in it. So don't throw that stuff away unless you can't go, you know, grabbing those in the toilet. I've seen people try to catch clots in toilets. Good luck with that. That is an, uh, an exercise of futility, I believe, that would be the best term of that. It's like trying to cash an eel. Yeah, that too. Other causes for vaginal bleeding, as I alluded to earlier, could be trauma, could be an infection, it could be the onset of labor. That starts with spotting of bleeding. Don't forget to do orthostatic exams. See how low that is. And then let's talk a little bit about trauma and pregnancy. I talked to you when we talked about uh, child independent adult abuse. We talked a little bit about domestic violence and how it's at its height during the woman's pregnancy. So I need to touch upon this subject again because this may be a 911 call for you or somebody who presents to the ER or the doctor's office or whatever who has trauma and are pregnant. Now there are normal reasons for her to be at higher risk for trauma, especially in the third trimester, because her center of gravity is all screwed up. They do fall a lot, but you have to rule out that question of has anybody hurt you in a private setting. There's three causes, motor vehicles number one, but domestic violence is number two. Placenta is the key, and when big trauma occurs, there can be major disruptions of that placenta, and then uh, vaginal bleeding and fetal demise occurs. 
What they ask you to do whenever you have a pregnant female is to use the acronym FETAL to help you with your assessment. A typical initial and secondary and focused history and physical. But then a kind of a fetal assessment. Now I want you to understand as well that the human body considers that fetus a secondary organ. So when shunting occurs in shock, blood is shunted away from the <clears throat> uterus and fetus quickly. So even in compensated shock, blood is diverted away from that uterus and fetal distress starts to occur quite quickly in shock in, a, in this woman. So ask the questions having to do with the acronym FETAL when it comes to trauma. Is there a fetal heart rate? And we'll talk a little bit and when we get into the pregnant female, how to assess for a heart rate. Ask the woman, is there fetal movement? And boy, in the third trimester, there's a lot of fetal movement. They always, well, they're, they're usually pretty quick to say, I haven't felt movement in a couple of days. And it gets pretty sad whenever that occurs. Try to estimate gestational age. If she's unconscious, I'll teach you a trick on how to estimate that by the size of the uterus. Has there been direct trauma to the uterus or uh, abdominal or contents? Feel for contractions of that uterus. That may mean placental irritation and, and loss. And has there been a loss of uh, amniotic water or blood from the vagina? Straddle injuries are rare. Not a lot of people walk fences. They do ride bikes. But they're smart enough to ride bicycles that don't have that stupid bar on it. Like, what was the deal with that? The bar that separated boys' bicycles from females? It was somebody's stupid attempt to say it needs to be a gender thing. And then, of course, it's job security for traumatologists. Um, straddle injuries that hit right on the vagina are very rare. What usually hits first? Inside of the legs, actually. Very rare do you have a straddle injury where you sit right on your pelvis. It can occur, but usually you bump the inside of your leg on the way down. So when we look for trauma like that, that are, oh, I fell, I, you got to look for that. We had an old lady, oh man, who was walking across her living room. The dog was backing up and tripped over a little footstool, one of those old metal footstools, and put it up on its back. She fell on it. It pierced her vagina and went up into her bladder. And to tell you the truth, there were no markings on her inner thighs. It was a dead direct hit. Oh, baby. Talk about impaled objects. People can do the weirdest things. This poor old woman, it was probably going to kill her because it did enter her bladder. Now, the local surgeon did all he could to control the bleeding. He removed the footstool, controlled as much bleeding as possible, but it did end up, it, a few months later, it killed her because of the rehabilitation. But you have to ask, anybody hurt you? No, I fell. She probably did, but still you have to ask the question. Foreign bodies inserted into the vagina. When do you suppose that occurs? What age? No. <laughs> I didn't think so. It, it can occur then, but the common age is pre-adolescent or adolescent, trying to figure out where that stuff goes and what to do with it. 
Um, the straight needle in the penis. Put it up his urethra. You know, sewing needle, a straight needle up his urethra. Yeah. And he told his mom, I swallowed it, and she believed him. <laughs> to this day. God bless her. She was in denial. <laughs> uh, it took care of a 12-year-old little girl who had a rampant infection. I mean, vaginal secretions that were purulent, low-grade fever, and we're thinking the worst, and that is somebody's been messing with her. She had a button up there. She pushed a button up, and it was really close to her cervix, and it was in a foreign body. So the body had to try to reject it through infection. It happens. It's as bad as the bean up the nose that starts to grow. <laughs> You'd be surprised what people put up and in stuff. And then, of course, uh, people who uh, don't have a normal sex life and put foreign bodies up there as a means of some sort of sexual gratification. We have x-rays of lots of different things up, lots of different orify. Yo. And I'm telling you, that is, that's fodder for the x-ray department for years to have those views, and the surgical department, when you end up with a colostomy. That's good. Poop out the side of your belly. Just for 30 seconds of gratification. boy. <laughs> It's almost always, guys. Almost always. Um, traumatic abdominal pain, uh, again, it's trauma, so you have to think about hemorrhage, shock, and all the other things that go along with that. And when it comes to trauma, sexual assault is an act of violence. It rarely has anything to do with the act of sex. Sometimes the perpetrator doesn't even ejaculate during the sexual assault. It is an act of violence. And when you think about that, she may be presenting, or he may be presenting, with the complaint of, I've been assaulted sexually, but you have to check them out completely for trauma. We have a particular role here, and mo most of it has to do with psychological support of the patient, ABC support of the patient if they need it, but also you are a means when it comes to transport and delivery of uh, evidence. No matter what, you cannot guess whether she was actually assaulted or he was actually assaulted by their demeanor. I've evaluated uh, men and women, both, who were happy, laughing, drunk, some of them, many of them, um, sad, catatonic, the range is complete. You cannot guess whether they've actually been assaulted just by their demeanor. So don't try for God's sake. Um, by the way they're dressed is also a provocative question that the uh, defense attorney usually throws at you if you're ever asked to testify. How was she dressed? What was her demeanor? That's very common. I want to throw sharp objects from the witness stand whenever I'm asked those questions, but they always come up. Um, the, on the f side of the victim, again, the range of emotions is wide, uh, but most of them have to, to do with the fact that something has happened, a critical incident has occurred, and we just need to protect them as much as possible. 
and encourage them to try to uh, go after the perpetrator, but some don't. If it is trauma, big trauma, and 911 is called, then that GYN system is of lowest priority. Initial exam, vital signs, focused, secondary exam needs to be done uh, to try to protect that patient's overall life. Now, if and when you're, you've got enough time that you're dinking around with a GYN system, then you have to worry about the chain of evidence and all those other things that go along with that. Um, we had a young woman who uh, ended up in our ER. She was transferred because of, she was found unconscious in her apartment. She'd been beaten. Um, and it took a very smart ER doc to turn her over. The reason we did, she had terrible head trauma, was unconscious, intubated, on a ventilator, was just terribly beaten. But what we noticed was the rug burns on her elbows and wrists, they weren't um, rope injuries, they were actual abrasions, and on her knees. So we turned her over. She had vaginal tears, rectal tears, tears up into her urethra. Um, from the sexual assault that went with the physical assault. Again, they're one and the same. Um, so it, it was a sexual assault that went really out of hand and she ended up dying from those injuries. But sometimes when an assault is like that, in females and males, it's not a bad idea to look at the GYN and rectal area for other signs of assault. So she or he, the victim is a crime scene in and of itself. We try to tell them if possible, don't shower, or if, if you can even help it, try not to pee. Because when you are peeing, you shed some evidence out with the urine because of the anatomy of the area. Everything should go into paper bags or there are some new evidence bags that are kind of plastic in nature, but the plastic with human secretions and excretions are distorted in plastic. So paper bags are better unless you have special evidence bags. Uh, the chain of evidence goes from the examination room right to the police officer and is documented as such. Every time that changes hands it must be documented. Uh, this takes special, special training to do this correctly. And if in every state now I think there are sane nurses, S-A-N-E, try not to take that too literal, most of us are insane, sane nurses, sexual assault nurse examiners, and they're especially trained by OBGYN to do sexual assault examinations on males and females. All right, time-wise, I think we can get through the act of conception here. And then before we have the kid, uh, we'll take a lunch break. It's always best to do that, right? Between conception and delivery. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the general outer dimensions. You want to take five minutes? Okay, take five minutes. Five minutes. The goal is to get out of here at a reasonable time today, so 
Anybody who impedes that should be beaten about the head and neck. of childbearing years in a non-gravid state. So now we need to start talking about OBGYN emergencies related to the woman who has a gravid uterus. We're going to talk about conception first, how that occurs. We've already alluded to a little bit. How to assess the OB patient, what questions you need to ask. Stages of labor, which should be a review for you because in your EMTB training, you have that down, right? You know what the three stages are? Normal and abnormal deliveries, complications, and then pre-delivery emergencies. We'll also talk about imminent signs of imminent delivery. The National Registry loves, in all of its versions, to ask questions related to a scenario where you have signs of an imminent delivery and they're going to say to you, what are you going to do? And two of the questions, or two of the answers are pretty predictable. One is stay and deliver. The second is transport. You have to make a decision. So we'll emphasize that in your heads. Uh, and if you're going to stay and play, delivery of the newborn, how to cut the cord, delivery of the placenta, and then the manage of the mother postpartum. Then we'll talk about all the abnormal deliveries and what to do about them procedures for complications of pregnancies, and then complications of labor. Okay, let's get pregnant first, can't deliver without pregnancy. We've talked a lot about conception. These are all the problems that can occur once conception takes place. Uh, it is very natural, all of this. <laughs> we have entered a world where it's becoming less and less so as we enhance our ability for conception. Uh, with medications and we enhance our ability to deliver babies that used to die quite a little bit with uh, just simply because they were too small to live. Uh, the complications that can occur once conception takes place are huge. There's a long list of things but the common ones are listed on the screen or on, listed on the slide. We're going to be talking about abnormal presentations, multiple births, disproportion, pulmonary embolus, newborns, a little bit about newborns, but NRP is going to take care of most of that. And then problems with the cord, placenta, and bleeding. Okay, in that ampulla of the, of the fallopian tube, an ova has been moved 
to that spot because of peristalsis in the fallopian tube. The woman got lucky within a few days of that placement of the ova. A sperm has winged its way inside and multiplication of cells has occurred. Um, the primary structures involved as it moves over the next five to seven days down the rest of the fallopian tube to be implanted are development of the placenta and cord and the amniotic sac. The zygote is the term for that 30 hours after fertilization as huge cell division is going on. Then a blastocyte, sorry, blastocyst, fluid filled. And again, this is absolutely must implant that placenta right away. So the whole function of the zygote to the blastocyst is primarily to get implantation. Remember that about a week after conception, implantation occurs and there may be just a little bit of spotting of blood. Not always, but it is a possibility. HCG is secreted at that time. And that's why pregnancy tests are accurate. It's looking for HCG in the urine or the blood. Now there are things that can screw up normal growth and development of this fetus. And they are listed on this slide. It can include weird use of medications, abnormal levels of hormones or enzymes in the body, uh, diabetes with persistent high blood sugars, the use of uh, anti-seizure drug called Dilantin, is, uh, even tetracycline, use of tetracycline by the mother at this time can create graying of the baby's teeth, permanent graying of the teeth. So that first, those first few days, the first trimester of pregnancy is so vulnerable. That's why they advocate if, if the woman is trying to get pregnant through, you know, daily practice, then you have to be careful of what you're doing to your body at the same time because there is a time gap between conception and actually knowing you're pregnant so that you can cease all weird activities on your body. But it's a good idea when the woman is trying to get pregnant to treat the body as if it's pregnant, no drugs, alcohol, or unusual things unless they absolutely have to. This is an ultrasound of my grandson. He is nine months now. Um, ultrasound is a diagnostic method to, to assure that pregnancy has actually occurred. If you see a fetus, I'm pretty sure she's pregnant, right? Yeah. Otherwise, some of the signs and symptoms of pregnancy are not that reliable. Lab tests can be screwed up, but an ultrasound is a pretty good definitive way of finding a kid. In that first few days, implantation is key into that rich endometrial lining of the uterus. Once that occurs, there is an attachment. It's like an octopus uh, tentacle up into the endometrial lining. This is the key for the next nine months. Without that placement and attachment, this is going, no matter what, this is going to have a spontaneous abortion at some time unless that is done right. So, this is like a cross section of the placenta. Picture that as that suction cup of an octopus tentacle that has just 
pushed itself into the endometrial lining high up in the uterus. Again, that's a pretty important thing to do, is implant high. Off of that, there is a rich development of vessels that allows the mother's blood atrial away from and then to the fetus turned around through one umbilical vein and two umbilical arteries. Through one umbilical vein and two umbilical arteries. Think about normal movement of blood through the mother's body and then normal movement of blood in the fetus's body. Things are a little bit turned around because oxygenated blood from the mom goes to that baby's heart and, and their lungs do not function. So arterial venous can be turned around. So look, and by color on this slide, they're saying which is oxygenated. So the umbilical vein actually carries oxygenated blood to the baby. It's turned around. And the arteries carry it away back to the mother. So if I delivered a baby that got into trouble and I wanted vascular access, and I can gain vascular access of the umbilical vein up to about a week out postpartum, whoa, I would gain access of the umbilical vein. Now, drawing a picture of the stump of that umbilical cord, I have two arteries and a vein. Why does the vein look sloppy? How is an artery made differently than a vein? The artery has more structure, three definite layers. So if I were to look, cut the cord, and then look at the stump of the cord on the baby's side, I'd look at that and go, ooh, I see two well-structured holes there. Those are the arteries. Then I see this floppy-looking hole. That's the vein. Ta-da! And that's the one I cannulate. And you can cannulate that with a 20-gauge IV. All you have to do, it's, it's not like starting an IV with that needle part. You just introduce the top of the 20-gauge into the umbilical vein while you're holding onto it with a clamp, and you just push that catheter right down into that vein, and then secure it somehow. You're going to have a class on how to do that. But this is just the start of what's different about circulation. And it's the key to the first part um, of the zygote and blastocyst as it is implanting itself in the endometrial lining. Now, in those first few weeks, um, a lot of important cellular activity is going on. And it doesn't take much to know that each cell has different roles and responsibilities and is differentiated for different organ systems very early. The function of the placenta is listed here on the slide and includes the transport, of course, of oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide back and forth across normal circulation, the nutrients that are necessary, electrolytes, glucose, 
and then excretion of waste from the fetus back out through the circulatory system, through its umbilical arteries, back to the mom. Hormone production is huge. And again, to support the pregnancy within the uterus, there must be a ton of estrogen and progesterone released. Otherwise, this, the products of conception are lost. So it's so huge that when these babies are born, sometimes they have a little bit of secondary sex characteristics. Uh, little boys have huge scrotum. And the men, men are always so proud of that. Oh, he's so male. Yeah, it's all those hormones he's been getting for a while. Just wait, that'll get normal. Um, females and males both have little buds for breasts. Sometimes even female babies will have a little bit of vaginal bleeding. Just huge hormonal influences all throughout pregnancy. And that is the purpose of that placenta is to support it like that. It's also a very archaic barrier. Your appendix is an archaic organ. We still don't think it has a function, but generational-wise, we haven't been able to get rid of it through our normal process of um, getting rid of organs that don't function anymore. It took us a while to get a frontal lobe, if you think about it. If you believe in that Darwin theory, uh, we were pretty flat top creatures and more like animals for a long time without a frontal lobe until we got a little more round-headed uh, and developed rational thought. Some of us have more of it than others. So it takes a while and many, many thousands of years to get rid of stupid organs. And the placenta as a barrier is very, very old-fashioned. It can prevent some crossover of infections but it doesn't protect much against medications. Remember that medications were developed, pharmaceuticals were developed in like the 1800s, and it just hasn't caught up with that. So it's not much of a barrier. That's why we tell women, don't take medications. The one medication that will, the few medications will allow women to take include Tylenol. If they get a cold, sometimes uh, Sudafed, if you can get it without giving away your firstborn. Um, we're very careful about what medications can be taken in that first trimester. The amniotic sac and the fluid within at, gestate, at uh, delivery, there's about a liter of fluid there. And the baby drinks it, pees in it, it's all sterile. Uh, they just don't poop in it. That's a bad thing. By the way, what's that called? Meconium. So the placenta transfers gases excretes back to the mother and is very important for hormone production. Partial barrier. Okay, this 40-week uh, gestation that human beings have, it just mathematically is so easy to divide into three parts of three months each. They are called trimesters for that very reason. In the first trimester, the growth and development of that fetus, uh, some of the things that are occurring during that first trimester are listed on the slide. But for, from the very beginning, there's been gender identification from the moment the sperm wiggled its way into the ova. But there are uh, signs of um, some anatomy that can be visible at this point. The entire uterus is hidden down into the pelvis yet. 
it's barely by the end of the third month starting to rise up out of the pelvis as it grows. The heart is beating, we just can't hear it very well. We can see it on ultrasound sometimes if you have a transvaginal ultrasound and can get up into the pelvis with the with a machine. In the second trimester, we're approaching viability as we get closer to the seventh month. But uh, this is very difficult for this immature fetus to be born and survive uh, because of all the things that are um, developing at the time, especially surfactant. And where does that arise? In the alveoli. And it keeps the alveoli open a little bit. Um, there's certain enzymes in the bowel that are part of maturation in the third trimester as well uh, that are pretty important to normal growth and development too. So the baby is now not only drinking the amniotic fluid, also peeing into it because the kidneys are functioning just fine. The heartbeat is present and can be heard with special ultrasound or if it's a very thin female, sometimes with a good stethoscope. Uh, kicking and movement between the fourth and fifth month, depending on if this is her first or second uh, baby. Very, very small though. Very, very small. Less than a pound. In the third trimester, this is where this little guy gains weight. Um, they uh, really rapidly gain weight and the uterus is very palpable above the umbilicus and above. They usually figure out the umbilicus at the mom's belly button at about five months, but it's starting to really grow up into the epigastric region at the, at the third trimester. Um, as the baby gains weight, it's more and more structured within the body. It won't cartwheel anymore. I mean, if you deliver a baby at five or six months gestation, it's liable to be born in several different positions. But once they reach a pretty good weight, usually it's a cephalic presentation where the head comes down first. If at the viability stage, seventh month, it's going to be a very small infant, maybe less than a pound, maybe one or two pounds for weight, with very immature lungs, no ability to generate heat whatsoever, can die simply from cold stress, very, very vulnerable to the environment. If you know that and support those, you can allow for um, life. We talked a little bit about the placental circulation in the big picture, but these are the changes that occur in fetal circulation. Now, I'm going to allay some of your anxiety. You don't have to know this stuff. In nursing school, we had to memorize all this CRAP. I tell you though, it kind of comes in handy when you're trying to figure out when a baby's born that maybe has a congenital heart defect. Wow, this comes in handy understanding this fetal circulation. Because we can influence some of the circulation to allow fetal circulation to continue to keep the baby alive. So let's look at four or five major things that can occur here to allow the blood to bypass the baby's lungs, because they are not part of oxygenation and, and CO2 elimination. It has to have a blood supply, but they don't breathe. So in order to do that, we have to bypass those lungs, and that's where most of these changes occur. Um, the umbilical vein and artery become ligaments later on after circulation uh, is taken over by the baby. 
There is a ductus venosus up here around the heart that is part of that circulation around the lungs and the ductus arteriosus. When circulation, when about, um, the ductus closes sometimes as late as two or three days after birth uh, and that becomes ligaments as well. Now tell me, the ductus arteriosus becomes a ligamentum arteriosum, uh, trivia-wise, what is, what is that? Holds the aorta up. It's the most common cause, the common site of aortic disruption in a major head-on collision, right? Because of the engineering curve of the aorta, that structure that holds that huge curve up is the ligamentum arteriosum, what used to be the ductus arteriosus when you were a fetus. And then, of course, the foramen ovale. We used to think that just was through the ventricles. That was part of that bypass that allowed blood mixing. But we now know that a foramen ovale can occur in the atria as well. Uh, that sometimes doesn't close. And we now know that some of those atrial foramen um, are a strong implication in the development of clots and strokes later on in life because of the, the problems there. So now they can send, when they do a cardiac cath on adults, they not only check out your vessels, but they're viewing that septum to make sure you don't have a congenital uh, ovale there in your atria as well as, as well as your ventricle. And they can repair it right through that system. <clears throat> so if we have a baby born who doesn't have a, a very functioning left heart and we want the right heart to help us out, we want to maintain fetal circulation even after they're born. So we can give them a special hormone to keep those ducti open so that they can have blood mixing. They're going to have pulse oximeters in the 70s or 80s. It's perfectly normal for them and they're going to have blood mixing but it keeps them alive until we can get a heart surgeon in there to fix those or help them out a little bit. So when a neonatal transport team comes in and is giving drugs to keep the ductus open, it's because they have a congenital heart defect and they're trying to maintain fetal circulation. So the terminology of pregnancy is listed on this slide and I'm just going to pop them up and we'll talk about the root word prefixes and suffixes again. There are, it's a whole different language when it comes to pregnancy and understanding how to read the term, the text and all the other stuff that we have to get into has a lot to do with understanding these words. Para and gravita we talked about and are going to talk about a little bit more for a little more better understanding. Partum has to do with delivery. Uh, natal of course has to do with the baby. Para, gravita, we know what those root words are. So as we look at the whole list it has to do with understanding that suffix and prefix. Pre is before uh, anti is before, post is after, uh, multi is more than one, so you can figure these out. If I tell you that this is a multi-paris patient, she's had lots of deliveries. We abbreviate that sometimes by calling her a multip. We're good at abbreviations. Prima para, it's her first. Prima gravita, first pregnancy. and gestation we talked about. Occasionally you'll be transferring a patient from one hospital to another, a high-risk pregnant patient, 
and you will see some guy who's just given four numbers to para. Just to further identify, remember when I, we talked about the gravita seven para four and we don't know what happened to the other three? This is what the other four numbers are all about. So if they add four digits to para one, two, three, and four, they're telling you exactly what happened. And you don't have to know this, but understand that sometimes because of the gray area there, somebody will have a system in place and this is the system. Uh, I interviewed a young woman, she's 22 or 23 at the triage desk one day who was Gravita 12, Para 2. Wow. She'd had a lot of surgical abortions, but she'd had a couple of ectopic pregnancies and a couple of spontaneous abortions. She'd had quite a obstetric history and was presenting with abdominal pain. Lots of fun. Now the presumptive symptoms of pregnancy. No diagnostics have been done. And you know what they are. What is quickening? No? Ooh, a quickening. Ooh. Movement, fetal movement. You know what? You know that fetal movement occurs at about the fourth or fifth month, strongly the fifth month in a, in a prima para patient, prima gravita patient. But I tell you, <laughs> uh, if, if she doesn't know she's pregnant until she feels the kid kicking, ooh, she's missed some symptoms along the way. Some women have very few symptoms. Some women, with the spotting that occurs with implantation, have convinced themselves that they've had a normal period or they have such irregular and weird periods that they don't know when they missed or it's not normal. Can you see why they may go months pregnant and not know it? That and the defense mechanism of denial will take you all the way up to the ninth month and delivery. Very easy to do. It is very interesting to watch EMS and healthcare providers who have this emergent delivery of a woman who swears she's not pregnant. And you go, how can you, it's just, that's psychotic. No, it's not. It is a fairly natural reaction. Very natural. Very natural. Um, I had a friend who uh, had three kids when she was in her teens and 20s. And then uh, about 25 years later, when her last one was like a senior in high school, her mom had died of cancer of the ovary. So when she started missing periods and had some nausea and vomiting, she thought, uh-oh, I probably have cancer. So she delayed going to see the doctor because of, you know, you don't want to hear this answer. At 42, I think she was, pregnant. Woohoo! <laughs> she really didn't get it for a long time and was in shock and disbelief for several months afterwards. And I think her husband was uh, stuck on the couch for a while. But it happens. You, you misrepresent what those signs and symptoms are, um, especially when you're very young or much older. There may be skin changes as well. Uh, 
those things that are usually uh, not seen or of a lighter color turn darker, areolas, linea negra that from the umbilicus down to the pubis becomes a dark line. Uh, it's all part of hormonal changes. Even the cervix looks a little bit blue because of the increased hormones uh, and some good physicians can do a stick the duck bill in <laughs> look at the cervix and go ooh that's a blue cervix and go pregnancy probably and then confirm it in other ways other signs of pregnancy more diagnostic in nature is to have the positive pregnancy test there are false positives Taking aspirin, certain antibiotics can give you false positives and false negatives here. So it's not 100%, but it's getting better and better all the time. The Braxton Hicks contractions, uh, those that start to occur at about seventh or eighth month gestation when the uterus is doing kind of warm up laps, that's pretty probable signs of, of pregnancy. The uterus is actually rising in the pelvis, that's a pretty good sign. And you can palpate a fetus in there, probably pregnant. Positive signs is that you hear heart tones, absolutely pregnant. Fetal movement felt by the examiner, not the mother, or ultrasound, MRI, or radiographic findings. Now, I say all this because we do have some women who have pseudo-pregnancies. Pseudo meaning false. It's a psychological thing where they want to be pregnant so bad for whatever reason that they've convinced their entire family that they're pregnant. It, you've heard these horror stories where eventually she tries to, uh, we had one in Southern Iowa who actually cut the fetus out of her neighbor. She had told her entire family, idiot husband, that she was pregnant and started to wear maternity clothes and all those other things, uh, told him she was going to the doctor every month, and then when it was time for her to deliver, she of course needed a baby, so killed her neighbor and cut the fetus out of her pregnant neighbor. Ooh. <laughs> so this can get kind of weird. That's why we talk about the positive signs of pregnancy versus the probable signs. Um, People are strange. That's why we have jobs. All right, couple of ways to try to figure out due dates. Number one, what the heck does EDC stand for? Well, it's Estimated Date of Confinement. Now, this is archaic as well. Back in the Victorian era, women were not allowed to be seen in public looking pregnant, because that means they actually had sex. <gasps> God forbid. I know it. What would you do without it, Leon? Never mind. <laughs> See, that's where I didn't want to go. <laughs> um, so this, this uh, terminology comes from way back when women were actually placed in beds in the third trimester. They were put on bed rest, so they were confined. So that's where the terminology comes from. So the ninth month of gestation is estimated from this. So you add 14 days to that last menstrual period, understanding the, what the period is now, subtract three months, and then add a year. So if her last menstrual period was 12-10 of 96, when was she due to deliver? 
Yep, September 24th of the next year. Now there's another way to do this because it means going forward and backwards. If she's got regular periods, you can subtract the three months from that last menstrual period and add a week and a year. It depends on which way you want to go up and down the date, as it were. This is also termed EDD or EDB sometimes in uh, medical articles having to do with date of birth because some women really hate that estimated date of confinement terminology because it reminds them of the Victorian era when women had absolutely no rights. Uh, either way, this is not an exact science. How do we really know when the baby's going to be delivered? Yeah, when it presents itself to the world. Very good, that's right. <laughs> we still don't know exactly. We know it's about 40 weeks and all these other things, but why exactly does labor start then at that time? Nobody really knows for sure um, what the trigger is. So we can do radio, radiographs, we can do ultrasounds, we can do all kinds of different things to estimate gestational age, but we're still going to be off a little bit. We can, uh, when we start looking at the gravid uterus, I'm about to talk about the complaints of pregnancy or what goes with pregnancy and body changes. Look at how the abdominal organs are shoved to the side with pregnancy. Now, start to tell me about her GI system. Does it work right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. Once the uterus gets into the eighth or ninth month of gestation, Really, it's nothing is normal in that belly, nothing. The uterus takes up most of the space. Everything else is shoved to the side. <clears throat> the liver is even pushed up a little bit, spleen pushed back. But um, peristalsis of the GI tract slows to an absolute crawl. So those complaints of heartburn, constipation, those types of things are minor in comparison to what you really have to know is the stomach is always full. The stomach is always full on a pregnant female. That is of issue in your A of ABC. Why? Her risk of aspiration is extremely high. These are the, some of the most difficult patients to intubate as well. You'll get in there with your scope and see puke. I mean, the stomach is always full. If you consider it that way, in a pregnant female, you'll always be right. Because peristalsis is so slow. Even if she hasn't eaten for six to eight hours, there's always something there. Always something. Frequency of urination, just because of the anatomy. In the first and the last months of pregnancy, that will be normal. Breast tenderness, hormonal changes, especially in the first trimester. Uterine size, I'll show you how to measure for uterine height and gestational age in a little bit. But by the last two weeks or so of pregnancy, lightning occurs. It's like lightning, not lightning, like effects of the sky. Lightning is when the fetal presenting part drops down into the pelvis. Um, and that occurs about a week or two before delivery of the baby. She can tell because she wasn't able to breathe, and now all of a sudden there's a gap in an epigastric area because the baby's height is lower.
down into the pelvis in preparation for labor. Huge problem here in the GI system. Her complaints of heartburn and all those other things can be managed. But when it comes to EMS, this is a huge deal because that GI system can get us into trouble with airway. Very difficult airway management problems in a very sick pregnant patient. Cardiovascular system, cardiac output is up by 25%, and that's also a problem for us. Let's say that she's in her ninth month and wrecks her car, breaks her pelvis, and lacerates something in that pelvis. And she's bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. Her cardiac output is, well, she has more fluid. She's got a liter extra of blood. So how long is it going to take her to decompensate? Oh, a lot longer. She won't decompensate as quickly as a normal human because she's got more blood and cardiac output is up. So her blood pressure will remain higher for a longer period of time. Added to that is the fact that tachycardia is very normal in the third trimester. A normal heart rate of the mother at that late stage is about 100 to 110. Other parts of circulation that change with pregnancy, the blood pressure actually goes down. That also goofs us up. So you have this woman who's 100 over 70 for a blood pressure, heart rate of 110, who's just been involved in trauma, and you're going, huh, I don't see the signs of shock here, that quickly rising tachycardia. Could she be? Could she not be? It's very hard to figure it out sometimes. Poor circulation to the legs, poor circulation to the pelvis. Supine hypotensive syndrome, we're going to talk about exclusively as a pathophysiology uh, and how to manage that because you need to understand that as well. In the respiratory system, tachypnea is normal, quiet tachypnea. She may be sitting there breathing at a rate of about 30 per minute. So that means she automatically blows off a little bit too much CO2. If I were to do a blood gas on her in the ninth month, she may have a pCO2 of 30, 32. Very normal. Very normal. About a half a kilogram or about a pound of weight per week. Water retention normal to a certain extent as long as it's not aggressive. Hyperglycemia can occur because of the demands of the body. They may even spill sugar over a little bit. Women who have what they call gestational diabetes where they start to spill sugar because the body is so much bigger too much body cell for insulin availability, too much sugar rise. Because of that, that's called gestational diabetes. It will return to normal when she's in a non-pregnant state, but because of that, it puts her at really high risk for adult onset diabetes. She's already proven that a bigger body size can tax the insulin demands. Fetal movement is also part of this as well. Uh, the quickening or feeling the kick starts to occur at about halfway into this, about the fifth month. And every day she should feel that. As a matter of fact, in the, as we approach the third trimester, that's a lot of kicks, 10 kicks in two hours. It becomes kind of normal. Um, if it's just an everyday fact of life. Once in a while, the one kick may be bigger than the other. It's quite startling. But uh, it's just part of the pregnancy. It's when women notice a lack of fetal movement, 
that the whole medical community kind of gets quiet. That is a sign that there's something not right. So any time a woman says, I'm not feeling movement, she needs to be evaluated. All right, why don't you take a lunch break and then we'll come back and start uh, doing the history and physical exam of the OB patient that's pregnant. Mother, but also the passenger on board. Um, so we talked about how to gain history, pertinent medical history. Ask if they have any chronic diseases, because that can certainly affect how, if labor has started, it can certainly affect labor. You need to find out their gestational history. If the chief complaint is precipitant delivery, i.e. they're fixing to deliver right in front of you, you're not going to get all these history questions. If you are, You'll be over in the corner writing notes as everybody's over celebrating the birth of the kid. So you have to ask key questions when, and very focused questions when it comes to hurry up. But if you have some time and can ask all these questions, you need to do it. And we've already covered these. But you need to ask questions related to the pregnancy too. Not only paragravita, previous history of normal consequences, any previous C-sections. Probably, if they've had a C-section and are showing signs of labor, they will need to have a repeat C-section. That is not always true, but most of the time that's the case. Any previous uh, GYN or OB complications? Are there any contractions right now? Um, if this is a prima para patient, prima gravida patient, her first pregnancy and she doesn't know what the heck's going on, you can call them pains. You're not supposed to be calling, are you having pains? Uh, you're not supposed to really do that. It's supposed to be a positive thing and you're supposed to call it contractions, what it really is instead. But sometimes you have to call it, are you having pains? And then they'll, sometimes you have to be specific, like are they rhythmic? When it comes to OPQRST, the time would be intermittent. Okay, how often are these pains occurring? And then you'll notice the rhythm to them as contractions. A multi-paris or multi-gravita patient should always be trusted when she says the baby's coming. Plop, you're going to get a kid. So she has experience, she knows that pressure down there, and when she is panting and looking quite anxious and saying, baby's coming, baby's coming, believe her. Believe her. The other question that needs to be asked is, do you anticipate normal birth? No, I've got twins. Uh, we had a hospital in southern Iowa who a lady walked in, her husband uh, presented herself to the ER with contractions, and they said, do you anticipate a normal delivery? No, as a matter of fact, I have conjoined twins. Yeah, that's a yikes. So they weren't prepared, and she it was a customer up here, so they had to make sure that she had... Uh, everything needed during the transport for high-risk delivery and then a second ambulance followed them in case the babies were born. Good thing it's close, right? So anticipation of normal birth, sometimes you'll find out, oh, oh by the way, there's something wrong with this baby. Ask the OPQRST questions, ask about vaginal bleeding or discharge, and then evaluation of whether this is going to be a preterm delivery. 
which makes this very high risk for the, for the baby. Preterm deliveries means you should sec order a second truck for one thing. You have two critical patients. If it's a normal delivery and things look like they're going to be perfectly normal, even though it's in the pre-hospital setting, usually one ambulance, two rescuers can handle it. But if mom says, oh, by the way, I'm at 32 weeks gestation, bingo, you need a second truck. So that's kind of a staging and organizational thing, too, in anticipation of a problem. Gestational age can be estimated by uterine size. And this slide starts to show you those parameters, but I have more that goes into how to measure it. Once in a while, you'll get an unconscious female, and you're going, oh, man, wonder how far along she is. Um, to tell you the truth, if they're that sick, if you can see the fundus or the rise of the uterus at the belly button, it's viable. No questions asked. You may be off by a month or two, I don't care, but that's a pretty good line in the sand, so to speak, is that you can see the fundus at the, be the belly button of the mom, that's a viable fetus. And why is that important to know? If she doesn't make it and you have to deliver this baby, you're not going to cut anybody. There was a paramedic, a flight paramedic out somewhere who uh, decided to take it upon himself to perform an emergency C-section way outside his scope of practice. He lost his license for this. Uh, even though he was well-meaning, it is outside his scope of practice to be doing stuff like that. But it would guide you to take that patient to the right facility to possibly have an emergency C-section done. Viability uh, also has to do with you know, if she's three months gestation, there's no chance of life, and doing CPR and things like that are on the infant is not right, okay? That's the other reason to know. Majoring uh, uterine height to tell you gestational age, you go from the pubis to the top or rounded part. That's the fundus or body of the uterus. And the table up there tells you the relative fundal height in relationship to the gestational age. That's pretty accurate. The problem is corpulent patients, really huge patients. It's very difficult to see the fundal height on them. In most cases, those people have a hard time getting pregnant anyway, but it is a possibility. The other thing you need to start to think about is fetal heart tones. Uh, by the 20th week, you should have the ability to listen to fetal heart tones. The normal fetal heart tone rate is pointed out to you as 120 to 160 and put a star next to that. Common question to ask on a test. What is the normal heart rate on fetal heart tones? Yep. And actually, by where you can hear it, can tell you a little bit about the position of the fetus. Um, first rule in fetal heart tones. You hear the heartbeat best through the baby's back. So if you can figure out where the baby's butt is, the kid is lying in a sideline position on either the left or the right. So if you can feel that butt up in the mother's upper right sorry, upper left quadrant, then you have a kid who's in a left occiput position, 
You can hear the heart tones in the lower quadrant on the left side, opposite on the right. That would mean actually palpating, but to tell you the truth, she can usually tell you where the kid's at because she's got discomfort underneath those ribs. She'll tell you that kid's butt's right up underneath my rib cage over here. Now, if it's in a breech position, if you're listening to heart tones down in the lower quadrants and you're not hearing them very well, and she's a relatively average, even a mildly obese patient, you can hear these heart tones pretty easily with the right equipment. If you can't hear them down here and you're hearing them very high, uh-oh, what you thought was the butt, maybe the head. You have a breech. In general, most are occiput, head down, and you can hear them best through the baby's back. So ask the mom, which side of your tummy is this baby laying on? Well, the right or the left. If they're of average size again, you can usually look at the contour of the abdomen. One side of the body is a little more full than the other. If you were to put your hands on either side of that fetus and palpate, you could palpate which side of the body it's on and then listen on that side. Now, a really good stethoscope with a thinner female, you might be able to hear it just by itself. But most of the time you have to have an ultrasound at a different frequency. It's just an amplified um, stethoscope. And there's two frequencies for ultrasound, Doppler. One is for arterial pulsation. So if we have somebody who we think has loss of circulation to a leg and we want to see if we can get distal pulses and we can't feel them, we'll listen to them with a certain type of Doppler. And then there's a little bit different frequency for listening to fetal heart tones. And truly, it's not that much of a difference, so you can usually use them interposed. Um, the heart beat sometimes can be just slow enough and her heart be just high enough that you're listening to her aorta. How would I know the difference? Well, maybe they're about the same, 120. Reach up and feel for her pulse. I have to do this quite often. It's a relatively slow fetal heart rate and it's a little more centered and you're going, wow, that could be mom. So I reach up and feel for her pulse while I'm listening to try to discern the beat-to-beat -beat variability difference. Uh, it's like the best description of fetal heart tones when you're listening through a, an amplifier like that is like a horse on cobblestones. They do not have a cadence like we do. It, they all have sinus arrhythmias, even though they're not breathing yet. It's, it's very fast and It'll speed up a little bit and then it'll slow down again. It depends on if there's compression on the head. There's all different types of variables that affects this kid's heart rate. Remember, it's a kid. Their heart rates go up and down on a whim, uh, even when they're in the, in the uterus. These are called Leopold's maneuvers. Um, it, there's like four different versions of this. And it's not like you have to remember the term, but what I'm trying to show to you is that this is what people do when trying to figure out the position of the fetus, you can get into a Leopold higher level and actually try to turn the fetus at about the seventh month if it's breech. You're not going to do that. Uh, it's hard enough for an obstetrician to do, but this can help you determine where this kid is at. Notice in that picture, right occiput anterior. 
Where would I hear heart tones? Right there. When you take vital signs, remember the changes in her body in relationship to the pregnancy, especially third trimester. Uh, and by the way, what position should she be in the whole time? Left lateral or? Two choices here. You've got one of them. We want to take pressure off the vena cava. Setting up, yeah, setting up will do it too. Um, so, you know, if, if she's in her own home, it's either left lateral or put some pillows behind her head and, and shift the weight up on her torso. Take vital signs. If there is a problem and you think there may be some low volume, you could consider orthostatic. Uh, it really depends upon what's going on. Otherwise, if signs of labor are present, you want to see what's coming out down below. <laughs> General management for this patient depends upon the situation. If she looks sick, then O2 IV monitor right away. But generally, we do not put cardiac monitors on delivering women. That's just not something we do. EMS does it all the time because that's your gig. O2 IV monitor. Uh, you don't necessarily need the cardiac monitor, however, it's kind of nice to have it. It tells you the heart rate all the time, her heart rate, mom's heart rate. If you also have a Doppler then, in between contractions, you can check the baby's fetal heart tone and, and document that. This positioning that I just talked about is called supine hypotensive syndrome or vena caval syndrome that occurs when the weight of the uterus and the products of conception are on the inferior vena cava. Blood can't get back to the heart, therefore cardiac output drops. She could be laying flat on her back and feeling syncopal and nauseated and her blood pressure can actually drop. It's just the weight of the baby and the placenta and stuff on her vena cava. That's why it's imperative that you remember left lateral to get it off the vena cava because of its position or sitting up. It's nice to have an IV in place, but not imperative. Uh, we've been delivering babies long time without IVs, without hospitals, without EMS. Squat and push works pretty well. Um, it's nice to have the IV afterwards, however. Um, if you need to give her a fluid bolus, if you need to give her medications, it's just nice to have what we commonly refer to as the lifeline as the IV for that drug route. You can use analgesia if you have the right kind. What am I talking about? If I give a narcotic to the mom, who else gets it? Right, because the placenta cannot shield that narcotic. It'll go right to the baby. It's okay. What's the side effect of giving narcotics? Respiratory depression. Ah, so if I gave it all the way in her towards the end of her first stage of labor, and the baby's delivered within a couple of minutes, somebody may not want to breathe, and that's that fetus. So you have to be smart about what you're doing for the mom. There are non-narcotic pain relievers um, that you can give. 
This is one of those times when uh, Nitronox comes in handy. Know what Nitronox is? Think of the compound word here, Nitronox. Nitrous oxide, laughing gas, so to speak, and oxygen, 50-50 mix. It's administered through a mask, um, and it's self-administered. Uh, it is, we allow it to be self-administered because as soon as they relax and their hand falls away, the, the medication is not delivered anymore. Very short half-life. It gets them through the contractions. Um, it's just that a lot of ambulance companies don't carry Nitronox anymore. Because it's such a short half-life, it, it can cross the placental membrane a little bit, but the half-life is so short it has no effect in the long term. All right, a little more for terminology. Effacement and dilation are two terms you need to understand in the prima gravida patient. When the fundus of the uterus starts to rhythmically contract and the passenger does his or her bit in putting their presenting part up against the cervix, both combine to open the cervix. It's done in two ways in the primapara patient. First is effacement or thinning of the cervix. The cervix or neck of that uterus is pretty long. The first stage then, the first part of labor is thinning of the neck of the uterus and then continued contractions once that occurs opens or retracts the cervix away, dilates it. In the multi-paris patient, that happens all at once. That's why it's sped up the second or third or fifteenth time you have a kid. More terminology, Braxton Hicks are normal contractions of the uterus that occur towards somewhere around the third trimester. They are not labor, but can be construed as labor uh, if you're not familiar with what they are. They are like warm-up laps for the uterus, just trying to get it in shape in preparation for labor. Um, if you sit there and watch them, you can probably make it become regular, and that's why a lot of women present themselves to the ER sometimes or to hospitals in false labor, because they see the Braxton Hicks and think they're truly in labor and they're not. The differences between true and false labor are on this slide. and True labor, the pain contractions are at regular intervals. The, inter the, the contractions get longer in duration, shorter interval in between, severity increases, pain goes from back to front, walking makes them better, actually makes the contractions more intense. Bloody show will occur, cervical changes occur, and the fetus descends into the pelvis. But with false labor, you can have regular contractions, especially if you talk yourself into it. But most of the time when an outsider watches the contractions, they're irregular. And in a general sense, if you get them up and walk them, the contractions go away. They're distracted from them. It's very easy to have false labor. Very easy. You add psychological influences, the due date's coming up, you're sick to death of being pregnant, put all those together. And boom, Braxton Hicks contractions look like the real thing.
Stage one. The signs of the onset of labor are regular contractions. That's the most common sign of the onset of labor. Not always do you have the others. Eventually, at the, at the cervix itself, it's always open a little bit, and in that is a mucus plug, which looks like a tenacious ball of really, really dense snot, if you really want to know the character of it. It's sitting at that cervical open as a protectant. As the cervix starts to open up a little bit, the mucus plug is lost. Now, the woman who will experience that will have gone to the bathroom, wiped, and go, yo, what is this sticky, snotty-looking stuff? Mucus plug, lost. With that usually comes bloody show, but it's not huge. I mean, there's not a hemorrhage here. Rarely does it even fill a pad. It's mostly just a little bit. Occasionally, the rupture of the bag of waters will occur even without labor. Sometimes it's in the midst of labor, sometimes it's before the labor, but the reliable one is regular contractions. They won't have all of them. They may just have one. When you time contractions, remember the fundus of the uterus has the contractions. So if you were to time them, you could go by when she experiences pain if you want to, but you time them from the beginning of one to the beginning of the next. It's not from the beginning to the end. When trying to figure out how far apart the contractions are, you time them from the beginning of one to the beginning of the next. And if you want to feel them, you would put your hand on the top, more top part of the uterus to feel that. And it, it doesn't indent. It's like flexing this muscle to try to indent it, especially a strong contraction. She feels the pain low, usually starts low in the sacral area and comes around into the low abdomen. Sometimes there's a little bit of radiation over the tops of the thighs. That's a common pattern. Some women don't feel any back discomfort whatsoever. And the contraction itself of the muscle usually occurs first. Contraction, you can see it in the belly. The belly will rise, then they'll start to feel the pain. So with that is the first part of the onset of stage one. In the first timer, this is a long, usually, a very long period of time. That's why we encourage them when signs of labor are apparent to walk around and keep active and present themselves to their hospital maybe within five or ten minutes, the contractions five or ten minutes apart, depending on how far away they are. <clears throat> Stage two is from complete dilation of the cervix, that's the point of labor, to delivery of the kid. This is about an hour on average. And then the third stage is to do delivery of the placenta. Now some textbooks talk about an hour of immediate postpartum care as part of this stage, but in most cases it's just from delivery of baby to delivery of placenta. All right, for a successful delivery, you have to have four P's working together. Passage, which is the pelvis and soft tissues, the passenger, the size of that kid and its position, the powers, the strength of the uterine contractions, and the psyche, or the woman's stamina and ability to 
work hard. Um, frightened women uh, with a lot of anxieties about what's about to happen, maybe not well educated about their bodies and things like that, or living on a lot of wives' tales for delivery may not have as good of a time here <laughs> as women who are well-educated, well-motivated, and have an innate sen uh, sense of their own bodies. They do much better in labor. All right, when I talk about cervical dilation, this is 10 centimeters, and that's just about, of course, scaled up on a slide, but it's <laughs> 10 centimeters. Now, you, in your scope of practice, are not allowed in your professional career, I don't care what you do in your own time, on the job, cannot stick your fingers into any woman. Got it? So you're not doing vaginal exams. There are two exceptions to this. Can you name them? Um, cord prolapse. What? Breach. To make an airway. Those are the two times. So when I tell you about what the cervix is growing to, it's just to give you a perspective of dilation of the cervix. Nurses and physicians can do sterile vaginal exams to check for cervical os dilation and effacement. And when they put their fingers in there, you hope not for me, I have little peasant hands, but people with long fingers, when you go in there, you're first checking for cervical effacement. How thick is the cervix? And then you're checking for how open the cervix is. So when I can get my fingers in there, and I feel no cervix whatsoever, she's pretty dilated. Then you add that to the signs and symptoms she may be exhibiting at the time, especially transitional signs, like get this kid out before I kill you, then you're approaching complete dilation. The second stage of labor, it's as if she gets a second win. She's wanting to kill everybody in the room and threatens them all with death. That's called transition as the late phase of the end of the first stage. You can usually tell when complete dilation is about to occur because of her mood. I mean, really, they act homicidal. <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, and if it's a multiparous patient, they may say, wow, you know, baby's coming. They sense that the presenting part is entering the birth canal. In the second stage, the contractions change, too. Uh, there, the woman has regained sense of self and has a little more oomph, can push. And by the way, there is absolutely no reason, and it's detrimental for her to push in the first stage. You're pushing against a cervix that's not open. So only should she push if she has signs of second stage apparent. Because of the presenting part up against the bladder and the rectum, she's going to maybe say, especially a first timer, ooh, I got to go poop. That will be what kind of a delivery? It'll be a delivery and a baptism at the same time is what it'll be. So. <laughs> Second stage labor patients, unless you want to deliver them there, that's okay. 
but you gotta know that that baby's gonna be delivered into a toilet. Anybody in here been delivered into a toilet? There are many, many babies delivered in toilets. Especially 911 calls. This is a precipitous delivery. Woo, things are happening fast. She has a lot of butt pressure and feels like she's got a poop. She'll sit on the toilet. Many times EMS finds their patient sitting on the toilet. Well, you can do it there. We'll talk about that in a second. It, you don't have to move her. She's not going to want to move. It, her primary goal, everything in her being, is pushing that kid out. So it's going to be hard to talk to her. It's going to be hard to uh, instruct her. Other terminology, crowning, is seeing the largest presenting part. Of course, you hope that is the head or the crown, but sometimes it's a butt. It is a presenting part either way. Now, your decision-making. Almost each National Registry test version has a scenario asking you to make this decision based upon what you see in the question stem. So you will transport based on the following two slides, the relationship to the imminency of delivery. So these, this decision is based on the number of pregnancies, an example of this. You get there, you've got a screaming Mimi who says, oh, I think I'm going to deliver right here and now. How many babies have you had? This is my first. You see no presenting part. How much time do you have? About an hour, usually. And if you're 15 minutes from a hospital, it's reasonable to transport. Related to the frequency of contractions, in the second, as they are into the second stage of labor, some of those contractions last 90 seconds and are two minutes apart. Tell me how long they have of a rest in between. That would be 30 seconds. <laughs> so if they're that quick, you're in second stage. And if she's had a couple of kids, and when she pushes down, you can part hair, you're staying. This maternal urge to push, sometimes it's just innate. Even on first-timers, they'll start to grunt and push down, even though they don't know why. It's because of the pressure in their rectal vault. And then if you see a presenting part, might as well pitch a tent. Unless it's a weird part. But in general, any presenting part. So that's one decision part. This is one part of your decision based upon how soon is this woman going to deliver. The other part has a relationship to do with the complications. Even if she's had 10 kids, has contraction every two minutes, if I see a hand, if I see maybe a foot, whoo, that's a tough choice. Anytime there's fetal distress, um, if you're able to do fetal heart tones and the kid's heart rate does not rise in between contractions, then the kid's in distress. Or multiple births. You don't want to be shucking out kids, a litter of puppies with one truck. So you better be transporting the owner of the children to the delivery room if possible for each of those children. Now, um, in regards to fetal distress, when you talk about listening to fetal heart tones, in second stage, think about the presenting part, your head, that the cranial sutures are not closed on. I mean, it's a freely movable skull. And then the mom pushing against that, and then the baby's head being compressed within the pelvis. 
what do you suppose the heart rate's going to do? Think of Cushing syndrome. It's going to go down. So it's very normal, very normal during the contraction, if you're listening to fetal heart tones, for it to go from 140 down to 60. Boom. It's scary to listen to. But as soon as mom lets up, if the heart rate pops right back up again, it's just head compression. Now, fetal distress, it stays at 60 in between. That's a very uncomfortable, panicky feeling. <clears throat> All right, this is what I've been talking about is the precipitous delivery. We talk about what to do and how to position yourself and where to put drapes and how much equipment to lay out. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it's like putting out a fire, a fully engulfed structure, and you've gotten there as you see, you know, the basement go up in flames. This, it, it, it's very little time for finesse. You're just going to hold on tight, hope you can remember as much as you can, and play catcher and then take care of both victims afterwards. So, when I say this is how you prepare the delivery area, I know up in uh, Decorah, a crew had a blizzard going on one day, and they couldn't get this, this patient out in the country anywhere. I mean, they weren't going to go anywhere. They were lucky to have made it to the scene. They were snowed in there for several hours, I think 12, they ended up delivering her very slowly and with finesse <laughs> as if she were in a hospital except that they didn't have as big of a bill. But most of the time you get there and there's a kid laying on the floor or somebody's holding a kid. I mean it's already happened most of the time. Do the best you can at preparing things. She will assume the position, whatever position she's going to assume. But you can deliver a kid with her in a left sideline position. She could be sitting up. She could be standing up. Put some pillows down in a big hurry. Or she could be on the toilet. Very commonly that happens. So just kind of do the best you can. The most important thing, safety of that baby. If she's standing up, it would be one of these numbers, the baby's coming. And you've got a pool of stuff on the floor. Grab pillows. Throw them on the floor gotta have a landing pad. You cannot catch these wet slimy kids. Even if you got your hands under there and caught that kid, it's going to go to the floor. Absolutely. When I show you this film, you'll see some obstetricians kind of grabbing onto this slimy little bugger trying to hold on to them. It, they, we drop babies all the time. Gotta have a landing pad. <laughs> really, you think that's an old wives tale. You can't hold on to them. You've got gloves on, hopefully. Yeah, grippers like firefighters have. But first choice, if you have no time and can't use much finesse, as you're asking the pertinent questions and you see the presenting part, push her butt back if she's on the bed. So you have a landing pad on the bed. You don't want her sitting right on the edge of the bed. If she's sitting on the toilet, have her move forward a little bit and get yourself right up next to the toilet so you're the landing pad, but pillows would help you there. Uh, if you're on your cart, that's a commitment to transport. If they're on your cart, make sure you have a landing pad there between her legs for that kid. I, I can't stress that enough. You have enough to do without having to hold on to a greased pig. 
this is normal position, left occiput anterior, but again, baby's position here has a lot to do with how this progresses. If the kid comes out face down, to tell you the truth, sometimes there's something wrong with that kid because most babies innately will just assume the proper position to make the dive out through the pelvis. There's four position changes that have to occur during this labor process as the cervix opens up. If the baby comes out face forward, sometimes their little brains aren't quite right, really. Although facial presentation really impedes labor and is a pain in the neck for everybody to deliver. But the occiput should be down. The back, the crown of the head should be down. Now think about all the different head positions changes this guy's going to make. To get out through the pelvic inlet and then out through the vagina. Specifically to get out from underneath that symphysis pubis. So stage one, onset of contractions and the other signs of labor through cervical dilation. So notice the cervix here, pretty well closed, probably has a mucus plug there. As labor starts from up above and the presenting part banging against the cervix a little bit, the cervix thins and then opens, mucus plug out, bloody show may occur. The bag of waters here may rupture, may not. But the whole purpose of that long, long labor is to open up that cervix, which takes a longer time in the first timer. Once the cervix is completely retracted away, it's completely gone, now this kid has to do kind of a jackknife swan dive <laughs> out of the vaginal vault to get through the pelvis. Now he's got his face down, he's got to tuck and then hyperextend to get up underneath that pubis. And then normal position is face down upon delivery. So baby should always be kissing mommy's butt, right? Face down, it's normal position. And then on their own, the last position changes that they'll turn to their side. The next part that comes out is the top shoulder. So face down and then the kid all on his own will turn as you're suctioning out the mouth and nose and saying, don't push, don't push. <laughs> Trying to keep them from having an explosive birth here, but you're suctioning out the mouth and nose, vacuuming out the well so that when the kid takes their first breath, it's not full of mucus. Top shoulder, and here it comes. It'll just be a speeding bullet coming out of there. Onto the landing pad as you suction out the nose and then the mouth, again, to stimulate the baby. What made this kid take a breath? The chest does what? It's a combination of both your answers. The chest hits atmospheric air. Chest is out, atmospheric air tries to create homeostasis, right? So negative to positive, the kid will take a breath if things are working right. Now, as we go back to, whoops, I have a better picture somewhere here, there. As this kid is crowning, Mama's yelling at you. The baby's coming. Yeah, yeah, I see it. Keep pushing. If somebody else is listening to fetal heart tones, remember every time she pushes, that heart rate goes down. But a little bit of counter pressure on the presenting part. Just a little bit. You're not shoving the kid up. What you're trying to do, since you cannot 
I'll say that again. You cannot perform an episiotomy. An episiotomy is a cut into the perineum to allow for delivery of the baby. You are not allowed to do incisions, period. So what you're trying to do is prevent her from having an explosive birth where she rips up into the bladder, down through the rectum from delivery. So just a little bit of counter pressure to help prevent her from pushing really hard and blowing that head out and then tearing tissue. So a little bit of counter pressure as it progresses that presenting part when she pushes down will get big and then when she quits pushing it'll retract a little bit that's perfectly normal until you get to the part where the kid just comes out face down and then the kid will just turn on its own you don't have to do a thing you've got a bulb suction suctioning out the kids mouth and nose you're gonna put your finger down into the neck and check for nuchal cord most babies have nuchal cord really it's no big deal Either, if you feel it there, loop it up over the head or push it over the shoulder as it comes out. In the video, it'll show you that. If it's too tight, very rare is it too tight, you may have to clamp it and cut it right there at the neck. Believe me, the kid will get hung up if it's too tight, and it's very rare for that complication to occur. Top shoulder, bottom shoulder, messiness. Lots and lots of fluid and blood all over you. If mom has any bloodborne diseases, you better protect every opening you've got. <laughs> every opening you've got. Think about it. You may be sitting in front of this. Your lap will get covered. It'll soak all the way through your garments you have any open lesions anywhere. That's why having an apron on or something over you is helpful, but you're gonna get slimed big time. I had accidental blood exposure one time uh, in a helicopter, the patient is sitting in your lap, literally, between your legs. He vomited blood all over me and I cut myself shaving that morning, right here and had a blood exposure from a nick in my leg. I could feel the sting when his vomitus hit that. I'm like, oh, crap. And you write that up for the employee health here, and they go, you did what? <laughs> in EMS, we get into secretion issues that nobody else gets into. And when you're delivering a kid, you are going to get slime, so protect yourself. That stuff just goes everywhere. All right, you now have two patients. One is hopefully screaming bloody murder and clearing out his lungs, and the mom is thinking of a name, probably for you and the kid. <laughs> Maybe it'll be the same name. When you're going to clamp and cut the cord, this is how it's done, and it's described in your book as well. It's a good idea, once you clamp and cut the cord, to look at the umbilical stump and make sure, excuse me, all the anatomy is there. Allow yourself a long umbilical stump. You're not making a cosmetic belly button for this kid yet. Cut it out for a while in case you want to cannulate that IV, that, vet, that vein. So leave the stump long. They can always cut it back later, it's no big deal. So clamp, clamp, cut in between. Those 
spasm down, but make sure the clamps are on there pretty tight. If there's leakage from the stump, 30 cc's of blood loss is decompensated shock for a newborn. That's not very much. So if it's leaking, put a second clamp on, even a tie string off your shoes, as long as it's not real thin. Now, here's the part where being a student sucks. Ooh, something happened to my pee. Well, I'll be darned. Sounds like a personal problem, doesn't it? <laughs> I hope it printed out on your slide, did it? I'll be darned. APGAR. Uh, as a student, you need to know this. In real life, you can always look these up. But there are twist questions out there on the APGAR scoring system that you need to know. Perfect is 10. There are five parameters. Two is perfect in each category. Now understanding that, A is appearance. Perfect is two, pink all over. One is actually normal, acrocyanosis. Now look at the root word. And acro means to the outside. So hands and feet are blue for the first several minutes until some ductus close. Okay? So fetal circulation is still a little bit there for a few minutes. So it's perfectly normal after several minutes to have blue hands and feet in a baby. Okay? But that's a one. If they're completely blue, that's nothing. Zero. Pulse, a heart rate greater than 100 is two. Anything in between is a one, no pulse is zero. Grimace, the kid screams bloody murder. We call that a lusty cry. <laughs> That's a two. If with stimulation all the kid kind of does is mew like a kitten or make a face and that's it, that's a one. No response is zero. A newborn, everything they possess is in a flexed position. Everything. everything. Feet up on the shins. Everything is flexed. If that's their position, two. And they wiggle around. If they're kind of limp and extended, uh-oh, the one, and they need a lot of stimulation. If flaccid, that's a zero. Respiratory effort, that lusty cry is a two. Whimpering like a kitten's a one. No response is a zero. Now, we do this examination at one and at five minutes. This goes on the birth certificate. Okay? If you were to look up your birth certificate, your APGAR scores are there. The thing is, we don't wait, want you to wait one minute to decide to resuscitate a kid. That's what NRP is all about. The neonatal resuscitation program you're going to take next Tuesday, which you just have the book for, takes you through the initial components of newborn resuscitation. So before you ever do an APGAR, you're going to pick up this kid, dry him off, throw away the wet towel. You're going to warm him up some way. Skin to skin to the mom is okay. Some sort of warmth. Position the baby so that their mouth and nose is level. That's a sniff position. You're going to uh, suction them, mouth and nose. They are obligate nose breathers, so vacuum out the mouth first and then the nose. And those are the initial steps, and every newborn deserves to have those initial steps done. 
then afterwards you can always look back and say, oh, the APGAR at that time was whatever. It's a retrospective scoring, but it is something that has to be documented. And as a student, you have to know it. Garbage in, garbage out. All right, third stage, delivery of the placenta. So you've got mom, you can see her face now, because the kid's out, and her belly is so significantly smaller. But there's still a mound of fundus left, and that's because the placenta is still up there. Uh, so you've done all the pr uh, initial steps for the, the baby, you got them warm and safe, and now mom's kind of crampy a little bit. You can see the uterus rise a little bit, bit indicating a contraction. There may be a gush of blood. Placenta is about to be delivered. There's third stage. Do not pull on anything. Mom pushes it out. And transport them. They will be inspected to make sure they're intact. Because one reason why a woman would bleed a lot post-delivery is retained placenta. So sometimes if something gets stuck up there in the uterus, it'll continue to bleed. Your purpose here, mom and baby, being taken care of by two crew members. If there's any trouble, call a second truck. So the baby's been resuscitated already with NRP steps and is doing okay. Mom has just delivered a placenta. You now need to control the vaginal bleeding that will occur. Remember, she has an extra liter of blood, and most of it will be on you, the floor, the bed, wherever you're at. Um, there's going to be large clots that will be impressive. That's perfectly normal. Uh, but you need to pull her legs down and extend them. So together and out with a towel or something over her vagina. That's the first step in controlling that postpartum bleeding. First step. Pull the legs out extended with something over the perineum. The second step may be to massage the fundus of the uterus, which now looks like a kind of a grapefruit mass just behind her pubis. Much lower now than it was, but still pretty big. Takes six weeks to evolve that. So massaging the fundus is the second step to controlling this postpartum bleeding that believe me, is impressive. It's kind of scary sometimes to watch this bleeding. The third step may be to give, and this is one of the few drugs we talk about in this section, is to give oxytocin, which we borrow from cattle. Um, and it is a naturally occurring uh, hormone that comes from the pituitary gland in mom and tells the uterus to keep a firm tone to its muscle. But when it's tired and it's been through a long labor or something else is wrong, it may get, lose its tone and the muscle when it's boggy will bleed. So giving oxytocin will help and that can only be given after the placenta is delivered. Situation number 422 in this section. National Registry will give you a scenario where uh, the stem will tell you about a woman who has delivered a baby and then maybe having some bleeding after the baby is delivered but the placenta is not out yet. And it's going to ask you what to do about that. One of the options is to give oxytocin. But what did I tell you about giving oxytocin? You give it after the placenta is delivered. Ah. 
because you'll hang up that placenta by giving oxytocin. It'll be stuck in there if you give it at the wrong time. Okay, we just delivered a kid and a placenta, three stages of labor, all done. And it's only two o'clock. You guys are really doing good. Anatomy, physiology, the menstrual cycle, conception, fertilization, and delivery all in a few hours. <laughs> Why don't you take about a 15 minute break and we'll come back and watch this video and then we'll talk about the complications of delivery. In the part where Leon growled a little bit, where there was a kind of a squirt of amniotic fluid, it was Mount Vesuvius. Okay. <laughs> the the paramedic student from Mississippi just announced that that's just the rinse cycle. <laughs> oh, they are usually not that dramatic. It's just it sometimes the ruptures when if you have the legs apart, you may have quite a squirt of fluid, but in general, sometimes women will just have uh, their pants get wet. It's not necessarily a gush. It may be a small opening in the bag of waters, and they don't know if it's a little bit of incontinence of urine, because when she sneezes and coughs, believe me, there's enough pressure on the bladder, she tinkles a little bit in her pants. But sometimes when the crotch of the pants get wet, you're not sure if it's bag of waters or urine. But we can test that with nitrosine paper. Test the pH of that to see if, it's, if the pH is low, if the pH is nearly neutral. And tell if it's amniotic fluid or, or uh, urine. Um, so we've had a kid. Life is good. You're naming the child. Maybe it'll have your first name as its middle name. You just never know. Now, you're doing the steps of NRP. There's nothing more important right then and there. Dry, warm position, suction that kid. If it needs to, tactile stimulation, and then assess its airway, breathing, and circulation. In essence, you're looking at color, respiratory effort, and heart rate. Heart rate should be above 100, otherwise you get your bag valve mask out and ventilate it. But those are the steps of NRP. If everything's okay with that kid, hand them off to mom, now you start to work on the third stage of labor, and that's delivery of the placenta, which occurs all on its own. Uh, the whole time you're doing NRP and naming the kid and congratulating each other, uh, the placenta is probably, the uterus is probably toning up again to push that placenta out. The big problem here is postpartum hemorrhage. So you need to know the steps to control postpartum hemorrhage. The first step is... Put absorbent material over the vagina, pull the legs together and down. The second step, massage the fundus of the uterus to make sure it is firm. The third step may be to think about some IVs and maybe giving oxytocin as long as the placenta has delivered and the dosage is there. If you can't get access to an IV, you can give that drug IM. The, the next step is, uh, which is not on the slide, is to put the baby to breast. Now they talk about that in your book and all kinds of things. Now, stimulation of the nipple 
it needs to be fairly strong stimulation of the nipple, releases natural oxytocin from the, from the pituitary to help tighten the uterus. That would be a good thing. The problem is that every other species knows how to breastfe breastfeed automatically. Humans have to be taught. We are kind of stupid. Uh, so there's a learning curve for both the baby and the mom to learn how to breastfeed. Um, and since you're probably a novice at it, don't go there, then <laughs> you should. <laughs> you said it. I I know know it. <laughs> um, the, the kid will uh, not know what to do. And it really needs to very, be a very strong pull on that nipple to release oxytocin. That's why it's a little cumbersome to try to do that since you're, you know, it's not somebody you know, you're not being paid very well to do this kind of a thing, and it's not a delivery area. If the mom knows how to breastfeed, awesome. She knows the details and she knows how to do that. If there's somebody else in the house who's ever breastfed an infant, then they know how to do it too and can help you with that. But it's not as easy as it sounds in a textbook. Okay, the next complication of pregnancy we're going to talk about, we've already talked about, and that's trauma. We talked about trauma to the GYN system as part of the non-pregnant uterus, but we need to talk about it again with the pregnant uterus, and again, this is a big deal. You're going to uh, be taking a class called pre-hospital trauma life support, uh, even if you take basic trauma life support, BTLS, both of those courses have presentations that have to do with trauma in pregnancy. Now tell me, I have a nine-month-old gestational woman who's been hit by a train, she's in a car, hit by a train, fully belted, she's the driver, it's hit on her side. Big mechanism and transfer of energy, right? Okay, I get there, I extricate her, she's acting pretty sick. Um, the other passenger in the car is also quite sick. I'm getting her out onto a backboard. I'm strapping her down. Head is last. I put her into the ambulance, and all of a sudden, her blood pressure plummets. Differential? Vena cable syndrome, supine hypotensive syndrome. So be creative. How can I immobilize her? You can turn her whole body to her side and immobilize her. That's a little more creative, and your partners will bitch at you a lot. We can't do this. Tip it to the left. You can put a pillow underneath the right side of the board and tip it a little bit, but i got to tell you, your strapping must be perfect. Otherwise, you're going to do a hangman on her because her body weight's going to slide to the side. Or the uterus is what we call balladable movable within the abdominal cavity. I could push the uterus with my hand to the left and do the same thing. In the operating room when while we do she's back. while she's laying on her back. Well, in the operating room when we do C-sections, they're lying flat on their backs, but we have a device we slide up onto the table that push pushes the uterus to the left. And they're laying there the whole time with that uterus pushed to the left. So that is a third option. Your hand Mm -hmm. Just push it. It is not very comfortable. Again, she'll call you names. That's got to be better than not having any blood pressure. Yeah, for both of them. You need a life. 
<laughs> Case study. You have a 15-year-old at the local high school with seizures. When you arrive, you have a couple of bystanders there. One's a teacher. This is a 15-year-old slightly obese female who is in the midst of what used to be called a grand mal seizure. New classifications here. This is called a generalized seizure now with loss of consciousness. And this teacher reports that this is the second one in a row with no regaining consciousness in between. What's that called? Status epilepticus, yeah. She has no history of seizures. They looked it up on her uh, health records. And the girl's friend is standing there and she says she's been acting very strange lately and been complaining of a headache this morning. Full body seizure, how am I gonna stop it? What kind of a drug would I give? Dia some sort of a benzodiazepine that could be Valium, which is diazepam, lorazepam, or midazolam. All the lambs can be given to stop the seizure. What's the side effect of giving one of those? Respiratory depression. You've got to be prepared to ventilate the patient. And now we've got just twitching of the facial muscles left. Her Glasgow Coma Score is 3. Blood pressure is pretty high. What are you going to do? O2 IV monitor transport. Watch for seizures. Control the seizures. No history of seizures. Seizure is a sign of something underneath. It can be a disease process all on its own called seizure disorder from head trauma and lots of different things. But a new onset seizure is a sign of something bad underneath. Differentials here. What if she's been running a fever? Oh, brain infection like meningitis. What if uh, two days ago she was involved in a car accident? Subdural hematoma. What if um, she's been doing drugs lately? Drug toxicity. What if she's pregnant? This is called, the disease itself is in general called toxemia of pregnancy. Once a seizure occurs, it's called eclampsia. <coughs> she's in a post-ictal period where she's quite confused afterwards. And they found a full-term infant in her tummy upon examination at the local hospital. True story. Contractions began and she delivered a baby who she denied it being hers. Part of the gig. <laughs> I have heard them say that. Um, so this is all called toxemia of pregnancy. There is a fine line in the definition here. Preeclampsia means there's not been a seizure yet. Eclampsia means a seizure has occurred. And this is very bad news for the infant, pretty bad news for the mom. This is a disease usually of prima gravida patients, although it can repeat itself in subsequent pregnancies, and has to do with hypertension and retention of fluids. About 15% of all pregnancies, it's actually fairly common. That's a pretty high statistic. 
They will shed protein in their urine, another hallmark sign, and it usually occurs right after the 20th week of gestation. So hypertension, proteinuria, or what they also call albuminuria, and generalized edema. Those are the triad of symptoms associated with preeclampsia. We diagnose it when two of the three are included, uh, hypertension after the 20th week, fluid retention with excessive weight gain, and proteinuria, or albuminuria, as the case may be. If any of the two out of three are present, they will diagnose it as preeclampsia. Now, they still don't know the exact cause of this. It's, it's an amazing world. There's so many things we do know, but this is one thing we don't quite know yet, what causes it. Once a seizure occurs, you must stop the seizure immediately. Fetal demise will occur. Placental disruption may occur immediately with the seizure. So stop that seizure, even if it means stopping her ventilations. Be prepared to do ventilations for her. Again, she's going to be a tough tube because of aspiration. But do the best you can to stop that seizure to try to prevent fetal demise. Eclampsia is a nasty, nasty thing once it occurs. If the seizure has not occurred, I want you to create a romantic environment. This is called <laughs> an anti-seizure environment. No lights or siren. Turn down the lights in the back of the truck. Keep environmental stimuli at its lowest. Keep it calm. You need to have O2 IV monitor, watch your blood pressure, transport very gently. Second drug we talk about in this section is magnesium sulfate. An electrolyte solution, cation bivalent. Why am I talking about this here? has something to do with muscles and contractions. She's not in torsades. Turn off the monitor if you see torsade. <laughs> so you don't have to look at it anymore. Synapses. It slows conduction across the synapses. So you're less liable to have a seizure. Okay? The problem is that we'll, it slows conduction across those muscles to the point where respiratory depression may occur, they may not be able to walk, and if I were to walk you over to the labor and delivery area right now, I'm sure there's at least one preeclamptic patient over there walking around with an IV pole with mag up, mag sulfate. They give it like Kool-Aid over there because they have so many toxemic patients. So they know not to give any more mag when she can't see anymore. The eyelids droop to the point where they could, they're tipping their heads back to walk. That's the time to slow down the mag. Really, that's the effect. But you really want to put an anti-seizure medication on board that affects that synaptic uh, property. Some sort of a benzodiazepine available to stop the seizure and of course, administration of magnesium sulfate. Generally, you put two to five grams in about at least 100 cc's of dextrose is better, but anything's okay. And we give it over 20 to 30 minutes. In fact, in some cases, we can give it IV push if we're in, in uh, big trouble. This woman needs a C-section. 
Now 37, even though a pregnancy is 40 weeks, 37 weeks gestation is a full-term infant. So they'll let her go, if she can, to the 37th week and then go ahead and either section her or try to stimulate her with several medications on her cervix to try to start labor conservatively. Uh, but they, they want to keep her environment, environmental stimuli to its lowest. Depends upon the degree of uh, protein she has in her urine and things like that. All right. Okay. We have about 45 minutes left. Do you want to take a break or you want to keep going? Okay, we'll keep going. <laughs> Other parts to preeclampsia I wanted to talk about. Um, this is uh, a little bit similar to toxemia, but it's called HELP syndrome. And the acronym has to do with uh, actually a deterioration of the liver in this syndrome. Uh, this patient uh, actually eats up their own blood cells, their red blood cells. Uh, their in liver enzymes are elevated and they have low platelets, so they have difficulty clotting. Uh, they also will have hypertension to a certain extent and retention of fluid, but in this particular case, um, they won't have the edema as much, and you have to get this, find this through lab work. Another complication of, of pregnancy is called hyperemesis gravidarium. Look at the word, you know what it is. Hyperemesis gravidarium. A condition of pregnancy where they puke, puke, puke. That's what this is. It is, uh, you know that nausea and vomiting sometimes are usually in the first trimester of pregnancy. Not every woman has it, but there are certainly those that do. But in this particular case, this is persistent. With weight loss, electrolyte disturbances, pretty sick. Admission sick. They get so dehydrated and lose weight so much. Now what they do sometimes to treat it is to give vitamin B, because um, sometimes that is uh, thought about as being something that may be deficient when they have a hyperemesis. There are other things that this could be a sign of, and we're going to talk about the hydetiform mole, but um, this, these women are really truly sick. <laughs> Ectopic pregnancy, we've talked about a little bit already, uh, and I really want you to have a picture of that in your head so that you're not confused by this when you encounter the young female of childbearing years who is in a medical shock for no reason. High on your list of differentials is ectopic pregnancy. Quickly ask the questions. Ask about the pain, ask about less menstrual period, those types of things to try to rule this out. Very important that you do so. Either way, a couple of large bar IVs and get your butt out of that scene. You need to take this person to a surgeon. We talked about where these occur, predisposing factors, signs and symptoms. Generally, this is exquisite abdominal pain, can be in a quadrant of the belly, uh, generalized to a certain extent, but sometimes it is so confined to the tube itself that they'll point to where it's at even though it's visceral. But it is very severe pain. And then when they become, when it ruptures, sometimes the pain then becomes generalized. The belly starts to get kind of tender all over. But they're pretty sick by then too.
before delivery bleeding we talked about. It could be lots of different things that would create vaginal bleeding. Even having intercourse can cause vaginal bleeding, uh, cramping and bleeding. Uh, some women have kind of a, it's not an allergic reaction, it's kind of a, react a reaction to sperm where it irritates the cervix and uterus a little bit. Spontaneous abortion, we talked about a, a little bit in that the terminology is such that you need to get this in your head. This has nothing to do with a surgeon or a dilator or an instrument at all. All loss of the products of conception before viability are considered an abortion, whether it be spontaneous or surgical. Spontaneous is also defined as a miscarriage, greater, or less than 20 weeks gestation. And a lot of pregnancies end this way, one-third. I read a textbook once where this uh, obstetrician guessed that one-half of pregnancies occur this way because some women don't even know they're pregnant, haven't even missed a period yet, and lose the products of conception because implantation was not secure. And then they just have a, almost a normal period, maybe a little heavier, and don't realize they were pregnant. So this is a very common thing to have happen. It is psychologically kind of disturbing to the couple uh, that have this happen to them, but it is fairly common. So some of the terminology, a complete abortion means that all the products are lost and uh, they are now postpartum. Incomplete means that some of it's left in the uterus and these are the women that are gonna bleed, bleed, bleed they are really gonna get into trouble and may call EMS for transport. Spontaneous, as I said before, is a miscarriage. Criminal means, of course, outside of the law. Every, well, the federal government has a law on abortion that sets the parameters. Some states supersede that for the gestational age with which, with you, can, uh, with which you can do an abortion. Uh, so criminal would mean outside the gestational age. Uh, my mother was a nurse back during World War II when all abortions were illegal and um, she did not believe in abortion either but she thought maybe there needed to be a law to protect that because she took care of so many women that tried to uh, do abortions on themselves. No matter what, some women are going to try to get rid of a pregnancy, no matter what. And it's not anything that's a problem of this age. It's been going on since women got pregnant. Um, so that being that. Therapeutic means that the uh, pregnancy was terminated because of the health of the mother wanted to be protected. A threatened abortion is one where the woman has signs and symptoms of miscarriage. She is pregnant, she's cramping and bleeding, but has not opened her cervix yet to deliver the products of conception. Inevitable means the os is open, it's gonna happen whether it hasn't, it hasn't completely yet. Another complication of near pregnancy is called a hadidiform mole, which is hard for me to pronounce. Um, this is a very, very strange phenomenon that does occur once in a while. This is when conception kind of takes a right turn. You have a sperm that conceives into a defective egg that has no nucleus, so cannot present DNA to the replication. 
So you have this sperm outside the cyst that is duplicating itself. And what will end up is products of that replication within the uterus. It will make the uterus grow very rapidly. That's the first sign of a mole, is that the uterus is way high in the belly, even though she may only be two or three months gestation. Her HCG will be positive because she is releasing that, but it's a hydatiform mole. Now, this woman may have vaginal bleeding. She may be hypertensive. There may be lots of stuff that goes wrong with this. They can test for the presence of a mole with, of course, ultrasound and blood testing and things like that. It is not a baby. Okay, placental abruption or abruptio placenta. There's two ways the placenta, once the fetus starts to develop, can get screwed up. I think the more serious of the two is abruption, usually occurring at about the seventh month and is termed bloodless pain because of the way this works. If you look at this slide, it kind of shows uh, one of the occult um, abruptions. Notice that the little suction cup, the placenta we talked about, has dehesed itself from the middle and has formed a tamponaded clot right in the middle. And it'll tampon out itself. I mean, the uterus will grow out. I mean, the, the blood pocket will only get so big before it tamponades itself. But what's not happening here? No lifeline to the fetus. And the uterus has blood on the inside of it, always causes irritation outside of its normal parameters. So you've got a continuous uterine contraction with pain and no obvious bleeding. So that's where the bloodless pain comes from in abruption. Now I got to tell you there are other types of abruption where a side pulls away of the placenta and in, if that's the case there will be vaginal bleeding but the big deal here is the uterus will be continuously contracted. Now you're lucky if you can save the mother's life. There's many times fetal demise because this will go on and within a few minutes, if there's no blood flow, this kid is dead. Now the thing is there may be enough blood loss that she may lose her life as well. So around the seventh month, continuous contractions, not necessarily a lot of vaginal bleeding, if any. Think of an abruptio placenta. Now she may have enough blood loss that she shows signs of shock. And this just shows the two different types of, of placental separation. It doesn't show it very well. This one is that dehesion in the middle, and this one is tearing along the side where you'd have occult or uh, bleeding. Thirty-five percent mortality for fetus. I thought it was much higher than that, to tell you the truth. Um, we're much better at recognizing it and knowing we need to do a C-section quite quickly, and sometimes we can save the the baby's life. Sometimes trauma will dehese the placenta away, but it can't occur naturally. It's just a failure of the placenta. Now, I needed to insert this little note about disseminated intervascular coagulation. 
because of the bleeding that can go on with placental disruptions. This can occur in any patient. DIC can occur in any patient that is bleeding to death. If you are going through the pathophysiology of shock, you get to the point where you're, you're using up all of your blood thinners and all of your clots. Because remember the clotting cascade? It clots and dissolves it, clots and dissolves it as it goes through the cascade over and over again. If you're bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, you're going to use up all the clots and use up all the enzymes that dissolve the clots. So disseminated intravascular coagulation is a patient in late stages of bleeding or shock or both who starts to either bleed out from everything, can't clot anymore, or clots too much and sends clots all over the body. It may be a mixture of both. It's very hard to control, usually is in the fatal stages of shock. And women who have abruptio placenta or other big hemorrhages associated with GYN problems can get DIC and die from this. You see this in trauma. You get them into the ER, we've resuscitated the heck out of them with lactated ringers, and we get them into the ER and every IV site bleeds, you can't control the bleeding. I mean, they, they just, everything they own bleeds. Everything you've touched bleeds. They just can't control it. Or in septic shock, like with meningitis, people will lose digits because they've shot clots to their smaller vessels and lose circulation to it. That's also DIC. The other placental disruption is the placenta previa, and we talked about how this can happen. Low implantation is number one. Remember that placenta needs to be high and tight up in the uterus to be good. Sometimes with low implantation then it gets into trouble when the cervical os starts to open. That big placenta over the cervix starts to open and now you've got a placenta as a pre presenting part. So this is later in the gestational age. Abruptio, cramping, continuous cramping about the seventh month, placenta previa, it's just that the placenta is first, there will probably be no continuous cramping like there will be with an abruption, but there will be bleeding. Both of these women need a C-section. Supine hypotensive syndrome, we talked about that a little bit. You will forget this in real life. Uh, if you ever bring me a patient in the ER, I shake my finger at a lot of people. What position is she supposed to be in? Because we forget. We put, in, we put our patients in the position we think they should be in, and that is flat on their back every stinking time. But there's many ways to do this, and you gotta remember the cable syndrome in these patients. So, did I tell you this story already? Anyway, a uh, 20-year-old hit in a T-intersection up in northern Iowa. On her side, she's fully belted. She is uh, about eight months pregnant. Breaks her arm, goes to the local ER. Her vital signs suck. Blood pressure's low, heart rate's way high. The only obvious sign of injury is the fractured arm. They fly her down here and the obstetrical resident walks over, pushes the uterus to the left, her vital signs normalize, and she goes home. She almost beats the helicopter back to northeast Iowa. The cost of that trip 
about $20,000. It's about $8,000 for a helicopter now. So all it took was to push the uterus to the left. How stupid do you think that entire pre-hospital ER and helicopter crew felt? Durr.